You're listening to episode one of the Secret Origins podcast, Redux, featuring the origins of Dr. Fate, Light Ray, and Black Canary. Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and my first guest this episode is one of my favorite podcasters who, unfortunately, did not pop up on my radar, really, until after the Secret Origins podcast wrapped up its run. He is the host of Secret Wars and Beyond, which covers the various volumes of Marvel's Secret Wars comic with Dr. G, a previous guest on the show, and the never-ending Reading Pile, which he co-hosts with Greg Arujo, another former guest of the show. Both of those podcasts can be found at the Pulp to Pixel Network. Secret admirers, please welcome Sean Ross to the show. What's up, Sean? This is so cool, man. I am a huge fan of your Secret Origins show, and I was I burned through episodes. Uh, by the time I came in, you were about halfway through, so I got you know tons of episodes, and and I loved the show. But it was one of those things where I was like, oh, I you know kind of hit the podcasting scene too late. I'll never get a chance to be on it. So this is really cool, man. This is like a little bit like Elvis. You know, came out from Vegas, and I got a chance to be on stage with him or something. Like, I, I'm sorry if I just compared you to Fat Elvis. That's not fair, but uh, you know, I, this is really cool. This is a show I never thought I'd get a chance to to be on. And so when you reached out, I was like, oh, this is awesome. So this is I, I'm super excited for this. Oh, if only you were the first person to compare me to Elvis at that stage <laughs> of his career. Uh, no, I, I remember. I remember actually reading your feedback on some of the later episodes. Yeah. And, then, and by the time I was tuning into Secret Wars, I was like, "Oh man!" Like, I would love to talk to this guy about more of this stuff, but it just we ran out of comics, or so I thought. <laughs> I thought. I thought the show was done. Pulling um, you back in, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's it's been a while since this show ended, and I think we need to refresh the listener's memory for what this is all about. Here goes. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. None of that is applicable to this episode, of course, because we're not covering an issue of Secret Origins. I already did that, but some people can't move on, so here we are. Instead, this episode will cover DC Special Series Issue 10. 
DC Special Series was a different kind of anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue having almost nothing to do with the issue before it, both in content, theme, and even format. The series, which shouldn't even be called a series because the term was an umbrella for different types of comics and the title never appeared on the cover of any of the issues, just on the indicia in the inside cover page. All told, between the 27 comics in the loose-fitting DC Special Series category, published between June 1977 and September 1981, 11 of them were dollar comics formats, publishing new adventures of characters like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Jonah Hex, Sergeant Rock, and more. Nine of them were 48-page giants that ventured into DC's horror realm with ghosts, secrets of Haunted House, and reprints of the original Swamp Thing saga. Four of them were digest-sized reprint books, and the last three were treasury-sized books, including the final issue, Batman vs. the Incredible Hulk, which came out the day that I was born. This episode, as I said, will cover DC Special Series number 10, one of the 48-page giants with the cover logo, Secret Origins of Superheroes. Sean is with me to cover the first of these three stories in the book, which is the origin of Dr. Fate. Sean, why did you want to talk about this character? I love Dr. Fate. I unapologetically love this character. My love for him actually started with the superpowers action figure in the early 80s, which was – it's uh, I mean so weird to have a Dr. Fate – You know, he wasn't in any book at that time to have a Dr. Fate character in that toy line. But the costume is so cool. It's such an epically good look, epically good name. And as a comic book collector, I've always been drawn to him. I've always been drawn to his, his series and his stories. So when you presented – the option of I jumped all over this. He's he's amazing, and also this it turns out to be a phenomenally written and drawn you know little vignette. So it's pretty cool. It was a good choice. I love the look of Doctor Fate. I love 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 the look. And thinking about the fact that there was a superpowers action figure and it didn't look out of place. It mm-hmm. he, he just fit right in with Superman and Batman. I can see a world where if he had a stronger publishing presence, maybe better stories, a little bit of tweaks, he could have been up there in the Trinity with Super and Batman. Like when you put him next to those characters, he just looks that dynamic and that cool. And it's the cape and it's the helmet mm-hmm. and it's the color scheme. It's simple, but it's that prototypical superhero thing. It's just awesome. And. I want to like this character. I want to really like him. And, and this kind of goes back because I, I covered his origin before back on Secret Origins episode 24. Shag and I talked about that, that story that was written by Roy Thomas going back to his original stories. There's just something about the stories of Dr. Fate that have never really appealed to me. And part of that is because many of the stories after the, the superpower story, like when he came back in the 80s when they tried to make him relevant – they kept changing the status. They kept changing who yeah. was under that. They did all of these changes, and we never really got a concrete idea of who is who is the, the essential nature of this character. And we're going to talk a little bit about that one, but I think one of the reasons that I struggled with what type of character is is because I don't want him to be DC's Doctor Strange mm-hmm. um, in that he's just the spellcaster and he can do all sorts of crazy cosmic stuff like that. Like For me... Doctor Strange is, is a very specific and very special type of character who can be active and passive at the same time. 
and and sort of appear passive in that he can be like sitting in a meditative stance while he's calling on weird magical spells and monsters to do like to do his bidding for him. I want Dr. Fate to be more of a man of action. I think that like sort of fits into the fact that he looks like a knight. And maybe more like Doctor Strange in the movie, Doctor Strange, where he's using magic as a sort of augmentation of combat ability. Uh, I just think something like that might be more interesting. Well, I think he's Doctor Fate is a character who has benefited more than I think any character in history from great costume, great name. Yeah, you know, just the the like you said, it's it's a I think it's a top five costume of all time. It's an amazing name. It's mysterious. It sounds really cool. So, yeah, I think a lot of us have been drawn to him. And and if you asked me, I do have specific Dr. Fate stories, but he doesn't have a you know 70-year history of great runs to choose from. So he is a difficult character. I agree with you. I like him a bit more rough and tumble, too. And I think that may – I don't know if it comes from the same place for you, but that for me comes from All-Star Squadron in the 80s when the your your buddy Roy Thomas was writing it and Rick Buckler was drawing it. Uh, look at Ryan. You, you're back at Secret Origins and you didn't go three minutes without talking about Roy Thomas. <laughs> and, so, and so in that book, there's a, a, a two-parter where Dr. Fate – is um, circumcised, for lack of a better word, and he loses. He becomes a half-helmeted Dr. Fate, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he, he goes from the full to the half. And after, at the end of that issue, they talk about his power set. And he's like, well, I'm no longer a, you know, a magician or a sorcerer on par with the Spectre, but I can still you know punch a guy, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of more of a Superman now. And so there was even a point in his publishing history where he was a more of a you know brawler type. So I think that for me, leaks in every once in a while. I like that idea, too. I don't want him to be Doctor Strange. I like him to have a little bit more muscle behind him. But And, I, and in this story, at least in the way he's depicted, he definitely does. All right. At this point in the show, I cover the character's publication history. I have already done that with Doctor Fate back when I covered Secret Origins issue 24, but I'm going to do it again now because some traditions are important. <laughs> But I'm going to stop with his history up to this story in 1978. Uh, I don't really feel like going beyond that because it's not relevant for the story that we're going to talk about at this point. Um, I'm also completely out of touch with DC's publishing since uh, the last I did one of these four years ago. I have no idea where he, he may have appeared. Um, Fate could have his own monthly series right now, and I wouldn't even know. Um, <laughs> he could be the star of whatever Watchmen crossover they're doing. I would have no idea. Uh, I'm just focusing on his first 30-something years. So, Dr. Fate made his debut in 1940 in the pages of More Fun Comics, 80 years ago. Uh, More Fun Comics, issue 55. He continued to appear in More Fun until issue 98, published in 1944. After only eight months of adventures, Dr. Fate became a charter member of the Justice Society of America in All-Star Comics number 3. However, he left that team book with All-Star Issue 21, also published in 1944, the same month as his last Golden Age appearance in More Fun. So maybe he burned brightly in the Golden Age, but he burned quickly. Uh, He was only around there for like four or five years. Twenty years later, Dr. Fate joined his former Justice Society pals, now designated the Heroes of Earth 2, in Justice League of America issue 21 and 22. Over the next decade and a half, Dr. Fate appeared pretty regularly in the annual JLA-JSA team-ups, as well as the revitalized All-Star comics starting in 1976. 
He also appeared in several issues of The Flash and two issues of Showcase, where he partnered with Our Man. In 1975, Dr. Fate received his first, and for a long time only, full-length feature story in First Issue Special number 9 by Martin Pascoe and Walt Simonson, which I am sure our listeners are familiar with if they have heard other shows on the Fire and Water Network. Do you know any more recent appearances of Dr. Fate that would be contemporary or important? Yeah, so he – so Kent Nelson, it, it, post-New 52, the helmet of Dr. Fate did not belong to Kent Nelson. It was taken over by another character whose name is totally escaping me right now. Uh, and he had a short-lived book. He was a kid, uh, like a college kid, and he gets the helmet. So it's kind of a sorcerer's apprentice kind of thing. And then the helmet went back to Kent Nelson and Inza Nelson for a little bit and then back to this same kid. Where he's currently appearing, it's funny. I I have no fond recollections of any Dr. Fate stories in the New 52. However, right now he has recently been added to Justice League Dark which is one of the Justice League series. And, and I can feel your eyes rolling. My eyes rolled the first time I heard about a Justice League dark book, you know, New 52. And I was like, really? Like, I don't, you know, we don't need West Coast, you know, Justice League or you know, whatever. You know, I just like, do we really need to be franchising these teams? However, having said that, this it, current iteration of Justice League Dark started a couple years ago. And it's written by James Tynan. And it is the best book on the shelves from DC. And it, month for month, and has been since issue one, and it's basically uh, a piggyback on if, if people listen to this. The your network guy was on a, an episode with Shag for JL May. Where we talked about Days of Vengeance, the one of the buildups to um, Infinite Crisis, and that team forms the Shadow Pact. And this current iteration of Justice League Dark is is basically like the Shadow Pact Part Two, led by Wonder Woman. But it is so good. It is alternatively a really good four color comic, but quite often super scary and really, really dark in a, in a cool way in sort of an early Alan Moore Swamp Thing way mm. with a touch of like George Perez Wonder Woman. And so it's, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. And he's, he was added to the cast in the last like five issues and is playing a huge role right now in this, this giant battle that they're facing. So he actually does have a pretty cool place in the DC universe right now in that he happens to be a member of, a, of the best written book on the shelves. I've heard a lot of other people recommend that, especially recommend it to me because of Zatanna. Uh, a yes. lot of people have told me that I should be reading Justice League Dark. And I did – I read at least part of the Jeff Lemire run during the New 52, and I liked that despite itself. Um, I thought that was it was kind of an interesting – it was one of those things where I think the concept is dumb, but the execution, given the fact that I didn't like the premise, I thought they did it a really, really good job handling it for a little while. Um, so – I I may get into that. Uh, I'm sure at some point I will break down and get into it, but maybe I, I have to wait a couple of years. But All right, folks, we're going to take a quick promo break right here, but we will be back in a minute with The Secret Origin of Dr. Fate. Don't go away. The world's strongest hero. The warrior from a hidden island. The master of super speed. The wielder of the weapon from beyond the stars. The champion of the seven seas. They are the only ones standing before a world beyond the brink of collapse. Their mission, abolish war and crime, eliminate poverty and hunger, clean the environment, cure disease, even stop death itself. They promise within a year to make the world a utopia, no matter how many lines they might need to cross. 
coming soon to the Pulp to Pixel Network, the Squadron Supreme Cast, an exploration of Mark Gruenwald's epic 1985 Squadron Supreme miniseries, a look at the heroes, the villains, the fine lines separating them, and how this miniseries continues to play an influence in mainstream superhero comics. Special Series number 10 has a 1978 cover date. According to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the on-sale date was January 31st that year. The issue has a cover price of 60 cents, and the whole book was edited by E. Nelson Bridwell. The cover by legendary artist Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his praise name, be his name shows the three heroes of this book. From left to right, we see Dr. Fate seemingly casting a spell of some sort to create a portal, or possibly a boom tube effect, because in the middle we see a light ray of the new gods rocketing out of the portal, and to the far right, Black Canary is staggering backwards in reaction to Light Ray's bombastic entry. What do you think of the cover? I like it. I, it's it's an unusual collection of characters, to say the least. It's it's not who you expect to be on the cover of a DC book, but I think it's cool. I think it's dynamic. You know, Light Ray's facial expressions a little odd. Uh, it's you know it looks like he ate too much cheese, but other than that, <laughs> I think it's pretty cool. And and I'm such a big fan of Doctor Fate and Black Canary, as are you, mm-hmm. that it's it's fun to see them you know together again on the page. So I, I think it's, it's dynamic. It's definitely something that had I been conscious at the time, you know, I was, I think just stating, uh, I would have definitely bought it. It's, it's a, it's a nice cover. What about you? Do you like it? I love it. Uh, I, I mean, it's JLGL PBHN. So, you know, it's, it's of a great quality. He does so such good work. Um, I, I love the way Dr. Fate is standing like with you know, yeah. kind of like his arch back and everything calling this action. Light Ray looks, you know, awesome and dynamic. He's not a character that I, think about that much and we'll get to his story later um but he looks great um i wish black canary wasn't looking so like terrified or or shocked Mm -hmm. that she's almost falling down but it's still really good and you're right about the collection of these three individuals it reminds me of um the marvel event from a couple years ago original sin by jason aaron and uh, mike diodato because they would just have like the characters and weird little groupings and i just remember one of one of the triplets was um I think Black Panther, Ant-Man, and Emma Frost, I think, yep. were grouping it. It's like, how the heck did you put those three together? It was really cool. There was a Punisher, Doctor Strange little side mission, yeah. too, that was really fun. Yeah, this is a weird group. I don't know uh, you know, if, if we know anything about how they were picked for this, but it is definitely – Doctor Fate and Black Canary makes sense. You know, They were technically sure, on yeah. the JSA together, but then Light Ray just comes bounding out, and you're like, oh, okay, it's, let's just go with it. It's just fun. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, inside page one is a table of contents page with the three heroes gathered around a glowing orb. And inside the orb, we get the titles and creator credits for each story. And Dr. Fate declaring, Behold, the secret origins of superheroes. Uh, quick thoughts on this page? I like it again. I think it's a cool little play on, you know, the mystic, you know, the mystic orb and everybody staring into it. And I don't know who drew this, but I really love Black Canary's facial expression. It's it's sort of a cartoony and really sweet. And I, I just like the way she's depicted there. It's not a way I've, I've seen her drawn before. I, I I actually I know I couldn't find the I couldn't find the credit for this page uh, on one of the. One of the websites, um, either, either a wiki or a DC Index website, I think it says this one was by Don Newton, who draws okay. the light race story in this. Because I, I was trying to figure it out, somebody must have inked it differently though, because Light Ray's face and yeah. Black Canary's face are not the same artist. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, there's just no way Light Ray's face looks like you know a, a heavy Tom Palmer inked, very serious like Reagan era Republican and. <laughs> Black Canary looks like an awesome mix between like Bruce Tim and Amanda Palmer or Amanda yeah. Connor, you know. So I don't know. It's there's definitely there was definitely some different pencilers or inkers at work here, but it's just a cool opening. It's a nice splash page, and I like that they're all very seriously staring at their own origins. <laughs> I, I remember at one point I thought this page was done by Joe Staten, who does the story yeah. we're going to talk about, and then I also heard that it was Don Newton, so I couldn't tell you. But uh, yeah, it, yeah, it definitely. Yeah, they, they have very different looks about them. But uh, All right, let's get into the story. This Immortal Destiny is written by Paul Levitz, drawn by Joe Staten, inked by Michael Netzer, lettered by Shelley Lefferman, and colored by Adrian Roy. Inza Nelson sits alone in the Tower of Fate in Salem, Massachusetts, while her husband Kent is out somewhere fighting to preserve order over chaos. Or is it really her husband, she wonders, or is it Dr. Fate? Because when Kent Nelson puts on the golden helmet of Naboo, he becomes someone unrecognizable, someone incomprehensible to Inza. He becomes the immortal Dr. Fate. Frustrated, Inza writes in her diary everything she knows about how Kent came to be the magical superhero. When Kent was merely a boy of 12, he accompanied his father, Sven Nelson, on archaeological digs in Sumeria. On one fateful exploration, young Kent discovered the tomb of an ancient mage called Naboo. Upon opening the tomb, a toxic gas escaped, filling the tomb and killing Sven Nelson. Naboo woke from suspended animation that kept him imprisoned for thousands of years and immediately banished the grief and anguish that Kent felt for his father. In place of these emotions, Naboo imbued Kent with magic that aged him to adulthood in a matter of days. Inza reflects on how Naboo changed the man she would eventually fall in love with, and how she wishes she could have had all the good qualities, like the physically perfect body with a totally aloof personality, <laughs> without all of the bad stuff, like fighting demons and monsters and not caring about anything because he's immortal and death has no meaning for him. After only days of studying, Kent Nelson had mastered the eldritch magic well enough that Naboo ordered him to attack him as a test. 
Kent unleashed his magical power and the human mage that had been his teacher was destroyed, revealing a glowing, fiery energy beam inside. This energy sphere, Kent realized, was Naboo, a servant of the Lords of Order, forever bound to Earth to act as its defender against the Lords of Chaos. The human mage was merely a host for Naboo's essence, but after 5,000 years of battle and sleep, the host could no longer sustain itself. The new host would have to be Kent Nelson. Naboo took the shape of the mage for one final time in order to create the golden helmet and medallion that Kent would wear in his never-ending battle against Chaos as Dr. Fate. Then the human shell of Naboo crumbled to dust, the energy spirit now residing in Kent Nelson. And Inza Nelson still sits alone in the tower, writing this down, hardly able to believe this is the man with whom she fell in love. She doesn't think she can live without him, but how can she possibly live with the immortal power within him? All right, Sean, what did you think about the story? I love this story. I really, I know Dr. Fate's origin, you know, backwards and forwards. And, and in fact, Keith Giffen and James DiMatteis would take everything in this, you know, brief part of an issue and build it out in their Dr. Fate miniseries in 1987 and and it's funny because I've always given them credit for the intensity of this origin, not having read this before, and then not realizing that even, you know, all the way back then, Paul Levitz calls out that Naboo murders Ken Nelson's father. Like it's not it's not accidental that he dies. So it's it's really cool. I love it. I think it's a really concise origin. I like Inza as the gateway, and I like that there's not a pat ending of like oh, but he's my man and I love him and I'll stick with him and in his adventures. I like that there's this shadow and this doubt and this unhappiness because it, it lends itself nicely to a, to this character. So the story's really singing for me. And then the, the, the rock star of this entire vignette is Mike Netzer because <laughs> uh, Joe Staten deserves his props. He is not one of my favorite artists. Uh, he's a little too cartoony for my sake. And, and uh, in full disclosure, I grew more familiar with his 80s work than his 70s work and seeing the 70s work it is far superior and I, a lot of people over the years have been like no 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 look at his 70s work but this looks like neil adams like it, this feels like neil adams drew every face in this in this issue and it's amazing so i loved it i i really i thought this was the perfect telling of this origin what did you think about it it was hard for me to not compare it to the other one that i've already done and there are things that I think Levitz does better than Roy Thomas did, and there are some things that I think Roy Thomas did better. When I read the Roy Thomas version in Secret Origins 24, I didn't know who was in the driver's seat, Kent or Naboo. Like, when it's Dr. Fate, I, I was confused. I was like, is it a Banner or a Hulk thing? Like, what is going on? Like, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell how much agency Kent tell, Nelson has. This makes it pretty clear that it's mm -hmm. all Naboo driving. Like, when he puts that helmet on, it's Naboo, and Kent is basically just the body there. And, and, and like, that, that's what Dr. Fate is. What Levitz doesn't do, and I, I don't remember if Roy Thomas did this any better, is give us a reason to care about Kent Nelson. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and we'll, we'll, this is sort of, this. this is ultimately... My my one hang up with this with the origin and this origin has been told many times and they never get over this one problem which I think goes back to the original story nineteen forty or forty one whenever the origin was first told. Um, it might be the thing that sort of sabotages the character when 
Kent essentially is taken as a boy. Like, Mm -hmm. when he is a child, he sees his father killed because of something that he is accidentally a contributor to. Like, he opens this crypt and the, the gas kills his father. He's culpable in that. But instantly, the wizard, the mage steps in, Nabu wipes away all of his pain and guilt. Like, basically takes away his personality, all of his feelings of that. And then, within a matter of days, teaches him all of this magic and ages him up to adulthood. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get shades of the Billy Bats and Captain Marvel thing, the wish fulfillment of turning into an adult to do all of these things. But... Once, like, the, the origin part is over and Kent can go out as Dr. Fate and, like, fight these evils, like, that's his entire, his his whole life is just that job of fighting evil. Like, who is Kent Nelson? What is his personality? He has no personality because he has had no life experiences up to this point. And what I did think Roy Thomas did a little bit better in his version was in the moment when Nabu gives Kent Nelson, he, he gives him his grief and pain back, and that's what he uses when, when he wants Kent to lash out and destroy him. It's because for that moment, he lets him feel the pain of, of killing mm-hmm. his dad again. But, but coming back to this one, I'm left with, I was like, oh, okay, Dr. Fate looks awesome, and he's got all these cool, and it's like the, the good ancient, but when he takes the helmet off, who is Kent Nelson, and why would any woman love him? Why does Inza care about him? How did they meet? How did they fall in love? What about him is she attracted to? Because I like the framing device of this, of having her write this journal. And she's a compelling character because it, she reminds me of like the wife of a cop or a firefighter mm-hmm. who is terrified that every time her man leaves to go to work, she might never see him again. And that is traumatic and stressful, and rarely is it fair. So you can see the concern and how that will play havoc on a relationship. And actually, the guys who did the, the backup strips after this, um, God, it was Keith Giffen and who was writing it? Steve Gerber? And Yeah, Steve Gerber with Marty Pasco. Yes, and, yeah. And um, Keith, Keith Giffen on art did the, the sort of the eight-part uh, like backup strips on this, and they really made that a focus part of like the trouble with their marriage. Uh, that comes up to the point where you think Inza might be cheating on him towards the end, uh, or, or she has that moment of, of where she's curious about it. But ultimately, like that's the, like the, the one part of this thing is I just I feel like that's what we love about him, but that's also why he hasn't ever broken through and he's not as special as the other big A-list heroes is because he has no personality outside the helmet. He's got no life. He's got a wife, but all like, why? Like, what is she there for? Well, and I think, I think Levitz is trying to address that in this story by having her be the narrator mm-hmm. and having her be our, our in, you know, into the story because, because she loves him and cares about him and is feeling this angst. We, we get more emotion from him than we've ever gotten before, but you nailed it on the head. We have no idea why she loves him. We, we understand she's in pain and we understand that she feels love. She said she loves him and is feeling this pain. And it is by far the most interesting part of the story. Her, the lens through which her emotions color the origin is really interesting, but we don't know anything about him. And this plays out in his character forever because when he's rebooted after crisis Kenton and Nelson are wiped away and you get Eric and Linda who become the you know Dr. Fate they merge to become Dr. Fate and then eventually Inza and Kent sort of come back on the scene and then even in you know later iterations in the JSA 
it's Hector Hall. And then, you know, Khalid Nassour was the new 52 Dr. Fate, whose name I couldn't remember earlier. And I don't think people ever really get in an uproar about that because Kent Nelson holds no special place in their hearts. I mean, again, the, the time where in my mind, he's had the most personality is in those all-star squadron issues where he, where he gets half helmeted (laughs) because he's then kind of Kent Nelson in more control. So there, there really isn't a reason there are events in his origin that make him super compelling, like yeah. the idea of his dad being murdered. And then you said, like, you know, he has some role in that by by discovering the tomb. But then in sort of it's hinted at here. And then in later versions, we learned that Nabu, you know, Nabu really drew him to it. So he really didn't have any agency in that. And then the, the being rapidly aged to manhood is is fascinating you know it's one thing to be steve rogers a man at a time it's a whole other thing to have the body you know physically perfect body of an olympic athlete 25 year old and to be 12 right. <laughs> you know that like there's an interesting story there that i actually find a little more interesting than billy batson and captain marvel but it's just there we don't have we don't know who he is there's nothing driving him and like you said he's just a vehicle for for nabu would and it, would, it, would Doctor Fate be any different if the gas killed Kent Nelson too, and Nabu just possessed his body? I mean, that would be interesting, especially if he were in any way trying to redeem that. You know, like that's kind of why he becomes Doctor Fate and becomes a superhero. That could be interesting. Yeah, I, I actually think they've got the groundwork there. I think the you know kid. I mean, like it's the groundwork for all great superheroes, right? Murdered parent. You know you know ability to get you know vengeance except in this case instead of hunting criminals he's his body is occupied by the very person who murdered his father like there's a ton of storytelling here there's a ton of of stuff to mine but i think what's happened is for a lot of us myself very much included we get caught up in the name the costume the onk you know sweeping in as the mysterious character like in those early jli issues right with the gray man and you know kind of you know just being that mysterious voice you know who has cool looking word balloons and we just we have no idea like if you asked me five traits of peter parker i would have trouble sticking to five if you ask me five traits of kent nelson i'm gonna be like well he's blonde (laughs) you know (laughs) He's married, and I'm going to kind of struggle from there. So, yeah, he really isn't fleshed out. Though I do think Levitz does sort of yeoman's work here of of trying to seed really interesting stories that, like you said, are followed up on by later writers. I, I, you, you mentioned the lack of agency, which I think is, is a big problem because he had no effect on that. And the fact that it's Naboo and like the, the awakening of Naboo, which is – ostensibly the heroic force of this story. Like he, Nabu mm-hmm. is the agent of the Lords of Order, which, by the way, this story introduces the Lords of Order and Chaos to the Doctor Fate mythology. I was going to uh, ask hadn't, that. That hadn't been present with Doctor Fate before this. But if Nabu is supposed to be the good force, it's when Nabu is awakened is what kills Fen. It's like, well, that's kind of like, a, you know, the a corrupting thing right from the beginning. That's like the, mm-hmm. the original sin that said it taints this this power and this identity from the beginning. And it's like, why did why did Kent have to be the little kid? Why couldn't he have just been the archaeologist explorer 
who discovers this thing as an adult, and then at least you've got a character with a day job uh, and, mm-hmm. and like his own means. So then you could say when he's not wearing the helmet, Ken Nelson is an archaeologist, or, or he's a billionaire playboy, or he you know goes <laughs> back and he's he's a doctor or something else. He's got some sort of life and experiences. He has none of that. He has no background, no face, and it's like so. It was like he must just have a really swinging bob that that Inza is attracted to because I. I don't know how they met or or what she's doing because it seems like when he's not fighting the Lords of Chaos, he goes back to his magic tower, which is like a, the, the final scene in Labyrinth, and he's just playing with, <laughs> and he's just reading tomes and playing with spells. It's like, what woman would put up with that? Yeah. Live with that? Like, I there's there's so much like that with a few little tweaks you can make this character, and then that's what I think. If they need, I think this character needs a hard reboot, and they need to start from who is Kent and what makes him interesting or if it's not Kent if it's Khalid or whoever like make somebody in this interesting but it's gotta be it's gotta be somebody who who struggles with the helmet or or if that's just like if if we were again, if we're going back to this idea that you know they you want to make him more active, more proactive, if he's like fighting the Lords of Chaos is like his nightly patrol, like Batman, mm-hmm. then you know during the day. He's reading up on his spells. He's doing he's doing training in the in the Tower of, of Fate. But he needs some outside source, so he goes out and he talks to, you know, a, a librarian named Inza Nelson, or or like a forensic invest, investigator or something like that, or whatever she is. But he's got some sort of personality, and then he's like, "All right, now I know there's some demons, or there's some vampires, or some weird shit coming through a portal in the world, and I've got to go to work." And he puts on the helmet and the and the amulet and the cape, and that's when Doctor Fate takes over. And and I think you need like a, a clear delineation of what his two lives are, and that would make it more compelling. Yeah, it's it's sad because at the end of the day, Kent Nelson is superfluous yeah. to this story. I mean, he just he literally could be anybody. You know, he's just a vase for the flowers. Like mm-hmm. it, it doesn't. Inza Levitz is really really trying to make us feel for Inza as a conduit to care about Dr. Fate, because I think on some level he knows there's nothing there to care about for Kent Nelson. That there is a cool element, like you said, why not just use Sven? Why use the kid? And I think that's a question that other writers have asked because Giffen and DiMatteis addressed that in their Dr. Fate mini in, in 1987. And Nabu actually wanted somebody of weaker will, like somebody younger who wouldn't fight the possession, which makes it even more sinister and I was cool with them leaning into the sinister, sinister element of it, but it's it is one of the reasons why I think the the owner of the helmet has changed over the years, and that basically the the helmet has become the character, right? The helmet is Doctor Fate, not necessarily Kent Nelson, and that is hard to sustain. and And I I just have to think there's an awareness of it in this particular story in this moment from Levitz, who's you know obviously a great writer. Because it's an interesting choice to drown to, to ground the story in his very dissatisfied wife. I do like the moment where she's thinking about, you know, well, and, and you know, he has stayed really healthy and young. And, and by, like, basically, like, contact high, I've stayed, you know, healthy and young, too. And then later on, she thinks, oh, I love him, but could I live without him? And part of me is like, you're not thinking, can I live without Kent Nelson? You're thinking literally, can I live without Kent Nelson? Because it's the thing that's kept me young and from aging. And so I, I you know, I, I do like that there's a little seed of suspicion of why she's even sticking around. And again, they, they, have, they could not have done more work to try to get us to be interested in Kent. It's just at the end of the day – 
he isn't inherently interesting because he's just a body. He's just, you know, right. he, he could be anybody. That said, I think as you pointed out at the beginning, your first assessment, it's an enjoyable read. And I think a lot of that is the art of Staten and Netzer working together. Um, that first page uh, with Dr. Fate sort of like in that position, like where he's sort of half floating, half flying with his like legs back and, and firing the onks from his hand at like whatever smoky enemy he's got. I mean, that's that's a great heroic pose that you could see on a, on a toy. Uh, and then on page eight, again, like really heavy shadows, but it looks great when he puts on the helmet and he becomes Dr. Fate. Um, we don't see much of Dr. Fate in the story because a lot of it mm-hmm. is him either as the kid and he's surrounded by, you know, the, the, you know, the Egyptian looking, you know, viziers and mages. But you get some, you get some glimpses of the monsters, you get a lot of images of Nel, of Inza in distress. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it looks good. You're right. It looks good. Well, and I have to tell you, it's funny because I, I kept, when I, when I read it for the first time, I saw, you know, it says Paul Levitt's writer, Joe Staten, and then Mike Netzler's name is like in a different font, right? It's almost like he hand wrote it to yeah. squeeze it into the, the credits. And so my brain filled, did like an autofill, and it was like Joe Staten pencil, Mike Netzler inks. And I was reading this issue, and I was like, oh, I've got to reconsider everything I've ever thought about Joe Staten, you know, because I'm thinking like New Guardians Joe Staten or, you know, Green Lantern Corps Joe Staten and where everybody's super cartoony. And I'm reading this going, I have never seen his work look this good. This is amazing. And then I hit a couple pages, and in particular, it's uh, page nine where you know we're seeing Nabu and Ken Nelson's head is there and it's it's Neil Adams I mean it's it's it might as well be a page about Havoc and the living monolith from the 60s (laughs) X-Men run and I'm staring at it like there's no way this isn't there's no way this is Joe Staten like this is this is Jim Starlin this is George Perez this is Neil Adams like this is too grounded and and good and not that Staten doesn't have his strengths but he's a cartoonier artist which is okay in some settings and I went back and really pieced it together, and Staten's doing like the layouts, basically, like they're like, like the opening page that you mentioned, the the pose of Doctor Fate, and then even Inza's hair as she's like reading. That's pure Joe Staten. Yeah. And the the physicality of the issue is Joe Staten, but I think Netzer went in and did all the emotion, all the character work, and it's a beautiful pairing because mm-hmm. it is. It's really the best of both of their worlds. It's like Staten's storytelling strength with Netzer's acting, you know, his ability to really emote in his characters. So it, it stood out for me as something really special. I think the art, you know, carries a lot of the emotional weight in this, which is really cool. And, you know, based on this, and I know I'm treading ground you guys have talked about before on this network, but between that first issue special with, you know, Pascal and Simonson and then this – and then those backups in Dr. Fate, it is kind of a wonder that he never got his own, you know, really got his own ongoing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it was given a big push because he's had some real talent on, on some of his appearances. Yeah, yeah, he really has. And um, I, again, I just think like with tweaking the origin, tweaking the man under the, he, he could be a powerhouse. He just, he looks cool enough to be standing toe to toe with yep. Superman and Batman. I mean, I love like seeing like the, the, uh, either World's Finest or DC Comics Presents uh, issues with uh, Superman and Doctor Fate teamed up because they're different power sets, but they kind of they have the, like the similar styles. They're like two sides of of the same coin, and I just I always think that those are pairings that bring out a lot of interesting foils for each other. The same way Superman and Batman do. Um, going back, 
years ago, I think, um, Diablo Frank was talking about, I think, the Wonder Woman movie on, on one of his podcasts. Uh, and he had mentioned something to the effect of, like, what if, because Wonder Woman was, like, DC's first, like, real hit after they had stumbled out of the gate with some of their other movies, like, what if that kind of became, like, what if, what if that was their, their first one and they decided to build their DC cinematic universe after the Wonder Woman movie, the one that sat in World War One? I? I took that idea and I thought, you know, instead of... Instead of leading up to the Justice League, what if they led up to a Justice Society World War Two movie and stuff like that? Be awesome. And shelve Batman and Superman, or you could have—I mean, you could have done Batman and Superman in the late '30s and '40s, like the way they were. Um, but have Wonder Woman part of a. Tri- but if you didn't use Superman and Batman, I thought you could have had Doctor Fate as the Superman, mm-hmm. like the real supernatural powerhouse character show's origins in Egypt, which would have felt of a time in like the, the 20s, 30s, and 40s leading up to World War II. And then with Batman, you would have gone with one of the more street-level superheroes from that. You could have been Sandman or, or Wildcat or Hourman or, or Dr. Midnight, something like that. But, you know, you could have had three of those characters be the new trinity for the Justice Society of America and, and bring in more with you know, having them fight you know, Hitler and the, you know, the the Spear of Destiny. Mm-hmm. But I just think, you know, Dr. Fate, you could have had a movie like that that would have been really, really good. Yeah, I'm all in. <laughs> I, I like your plan better than what we got. <laughs> uh, okay. Any any other final thoughts on Dr. Fate? No, just again, you know, I love the name, love the costume, and the costume is just so good. And I, I really do, he has had some great moments. I mean, I, I would recommend... You know, that, that Keith Giffen, J.M.D. Mateus miniseries from 1987, and then the follow-up series by J.M.D. Mateus and Sean McManus, which I actually did not read. I, I loved the mini. I tried the first issue of that book when it came out in, like, 88, and I, it wasn't for me. I wasn't a fan of McManus's art at the time. You know, it's one of those things, like, you know, the, the art that turns you off as a kid. It, when you're an adult, you look back and go, like, oh, this is amazing. This is so different than everything else that was out there. <laughs> And and I because of uh, Shag actually and 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 quite a few other people on this network who were saying like oh this series is great try it try it try it I ended up tra- reading that the whole run and it was fantastic and so, you know so there have been some really great stories with him and I am glad that he's back in you know in jail or Justice League Dark and that it is Khalid Nasor who I have limited exposure to relative to you know i think like i said he had a short-lived series for new 52 i didn't happen to read but just what i've read in jla dark i've really liked and and i think he was the attempt and i'm pretty sure he was created by paul levitz actually he was the attempt to correct the very thing we've been discussing because they really limited no uh naboo to like a, a martin stein role like a voice in his head right versus full possession and he has way more agency than anybody else has had at the in that in this role. So I, I'm hopeful that that's kind of the path they're taking because I like that idea. I like the idea of sort of you know Lil Doctor Fate, you know, and you know kind of learning I, learning the ropes. I also think I mean because his look is so iconic, but his his identity is completely concealed, much like a Spider Man type of thing with with the full face helmet and everything. And because as we've said, there's like nobody cares about Kent Nelson because there's nothing much there. I think he is a character who could be easily race like you could you could swap out a different race you could make him a person of color you could make him Egyptian or, or uh, I don't I don't know if Khalid was supposed to be Egyptian or another nationality um, yeah he but, I, I believe he is Egyptian yeah okay um, but I think you could do something like that and not many people would bat an eye or care because you're not like I don't 
think many people are like, oh, you're betraying the, the essential essence of Kent Nelson. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, you're not going to tell when he puts on the mask. So, yeah, I, I think something like that would be great. Um, in terms of recommended readings, at some point, I think they were, they were DC was teasing that they were going to do a collection that featured this story, the first issue special story, and all those backups by by Pasco and Gerber and, um, and uh, Giffen that never came to fruition. However, they have released a first issue special collection, like a hardcover, which which does include the Simonson story, uh, which which I recommend. But uh, yeah, hopefully, I, I don't know if he's in Star Girl, but it wouldn't surprise me if he's not on was, that show yet. He might be. I was just going to bring that up, yeah, because he's had some multimedia appearances, right? Like he's in Smallville. He was in Smallville. I uh, was he? In, I, I honestly, I haven't been watching, so I don't know if he was in uh, Legends of Tomorrow or something like that. But if he's not on Star Girl yet, I would expect that he will be at some point in the future. Yeah. I would think so too. It's too iconic a look, and yeah. you know they're definitely going that route, right? With the JSA, he was also, I think, really effectively used in the Young Justice cartoon. Yeah, you know that where the helmet. I mean, you know, Zatara actually takes the helmet because Zatanna is going to wear it, and he knows she'll be possessed, and he takes it instead of her. And I think they used they used that element of it really well. So you know, there there have been some pretty cool ways to show that that it is a viable. He's a viable character. And I am hoping for a resurgence. I am hoping for you know a, a, a bit more because again, like the potential's there. Yeah, yeah. All right, Sean. Thank you very much for uh, helping me out on this episode of Secret Origins Podcast. Where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Thanks so much for having me. I, I said this to you privately, but I've been geeking out this entire episode because this is actually Secret Origins was a show that got me into podcasting. I didn't even know what a podcast was. And my buddy, Dr. G, was like, hey, we should do a podcast. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. And he's like, here, listen to this. And I got hooked, and it opened up this whole world for me. So I, I really owe you because your show, that show pulled me in. So this has been really exciting for me. So I, I just I want to say thank you, first of all. But uh, people can find me, like you said earlier, on the Pulp to Pixel podcast network, where we talk a lot about Marvel books. We're not exclusively Marvel, but we, we kind of lean in that direction. And we talk about Secret Wars. We have a Secret Wars show. We have a What If show. Uh, never-ending reading pile where we talk about comics from throughout the years that we love and yeah just we have a lot of fun on the network and uh and also you know i love you know getting to to guest on on your shows and i've really enjoyed it and again kind of a weird little dream come true to get to be on secret origins i thought it was something that was buried in the past and i'm glad they forced you out of retirement (laughs) i too thought it was something from the past uh and I wasn't even sure if I was going to release this episode if this recording didn't go really, really well. And <laughs> I guess you passed the test. So. All right. Well, that's good. That's good. I feel good about that. All right. Thank you very much again. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Secret admirers, you know the deal. We are going to take a short promo break right now, but we will be back after a minute with another origin story. Don't go away. For years, the Fire & Water Podcast Network has found its joy talking about comics. From Aquaman and Firestorm to Batman and Plastic Man. From giant treasuries to pocket-sized digests. From massive miniseries events to singular one-shot adventures. From romance to horror to whatever the hell Ohatmu or not is. In the last year, they've begun to carve a path through their favorite television shows, such as M.A.S.H., 
Cheers, and Justice League Unlimited, and there's no sign of them stopping. What medium will fire and water conquer next? Introducing Fire and Water Records, the music anthology podcast from the Fire and Water Network. Find your joy in all new ways as members of the Fire and Water Network and their friends discuss favorite songs, albums, concerts, and artists. Hang on, I've been doing a music show for two years. Featuring Record Revolution. Join the Brothers Daily as we catalog the essential years that shaped popular music and our own lives. A very daily Christmas. An annual celebration of our favorite holiday tracks. Plus, all new episodes of Zoom for Sam. The show in which I share my joy of Samantha Fox by spotlighting a single single every single episode. And Pod Dylan. No, not Pod Dylan. We discussed this. That's staying on its own feed. Not Pod Dylan, but everything else I said. Plus, so much more. There's even a chance David Ace Gutierrez will show up. Which brings us back to Fastball, which is really one of the most interesting American bands in the world today. When you think about the number of side projects and solo projects associated with the band, it actually almost out. Fire and Water Records, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My next guest is a longtime fan of the Fire and Water Network who has appeared on a couple of our shows, and his appearance here is proof that I am very susceptible to flattery. Please welcome Terry O'Malley to the show. What's up, Terry? Hello, Ryan. Thank you very much. I am flattered to be asked to be on this auspicious occasion of the revival of the Secret Origins podcast. Why did I pick you? Why, why, why did you get the golden <laughs> ticket to be on this episode? Tell me again. All this, all the uh, Fire and Water gang got together for the Boston, whatever they call the Boston Comic Book Convention these days, uh, last summer. And I crashed the party because I live near Boston. So I came down and introduced myself to Ryan and Rob and Shag and Ange and Frank and all all, the, all these people were there. I think you literally uh, the time out of even the there. shadows. <laughs> I was walking down the street. You were a gang coming up the street. But I was able to tell Ryan to his face – that because of the Secret Origins podcast is why I started listening to podcasts and why I started listening to all these Fire and Water Network podcasts and why I'm call- I feel like I'm on a first name basis with people like Rob and Ryan and Shag and people like that because I had read on a blog which is like a podcast but you have to read it on the computer <laughs> about the on the Legion of Superheroes so there's it was either Siskoid and or Ange, 
and one of them mentioned this podcast with the origin of the Legion of Substitute Heroes. And I had that comic in my collection, so I, and I liked that comic, so I wanted to listen to the podcast about that comic, and then I said to myself, this is a pretty good thing to listen to. I wonder if this guy has talked about my other favorite issues of Secret Wars. It's his Batman and Crimson Avenger, and... Mm-hmm. So I listened to those, and then I said, well, I might as well listen to the rest of them now. <laughs> and once you start listening to one of them, then you have to, have to start listening to all of them, and that leads to the next program and the next program and the next program. And suddenly you find yourself listening to a couple of Canadians talking about comics you've never read and have no intention to read. <laughs> and that is, what the heck? Yeah, let's do it anyways. The gateway drug. It was indeed a gateway drug. Yeah. Well, oh, thank you very much, and thank you for telling me about it, because uh, it, it definitely burrowed its way in my mind, and I didn't forget. And so, now I get to be on a Secret Origin show! Now you get to be on the Secret Origin show, and you get to join me in talking about Jack Kirby's New Gods, and in particular, the story that we're talking about is the origin of Light Ray. Terry, what is your familiarity with the New Gods and Kirby's Fourth World creations? All right, this is cool because this book came out in my nascent years of comic collecting. I'm an old fella, listeners. Um, I'm much older than Ryan. I'm even older than Rob. I'm even older than uh, everybody except for um, for Bob Fisher of the Superman podcast. <laughs> he, he beats me, but not by much. But I was in uh, eighth grade when this came out, and my hair right now is just about as long as it was back then in the 70s. <laughs> So I had just started buying comics in the summer of 76. I was reading them before then, but I started buying them. And so every month, month I'd try to add another title, spend another 35 cents if I could afford it. And um, I, I tell you, being a fan of comics in the, in the late 70s was terrific. I gravitated more toward the DC titles. Uh, I found the Marvel titles hard to get into, but once I got into them, it was a little more smooth or sailing. But New Gods, number 12 came out in 1977, mm-hmm. and it was the first I had heard of it. I didn't know what the new gods were because I wasn't. I didn't know about the Kirby books, so I bought it. gave it I gave it a, a try, and I, I bought it off and on during that run. And so when this Secret Origins issue came out, I out. I said, "Oh well, I'm going to get this. I, I like Black Canary. I like Doctor Fate, and I've been reading about this other fellow, Light Ray. So let's see if I can get some more background information to help with these new god stories." So, so when that, that series didn't last too long because of the DC implosion, um, but on subsequent appearances of Kirby's characters, I was well ready for that. But going into it, I had I had no idea. Yeah. In fact, until a character in the New Gods addressed Orion as Mister Orion, like he was an Irish fellow, <laughs> I thought his name was Orion. I was surprised. I actually had to go back and and remind myself that hardly any of the New Gods or Fourth World characters appeared in the original Secret Origins that I did. I think it was just Mr. Miracle, uh, which I covered as part of the JLI. uh, That's right. uh, Which I covered with David Ace Gutierrez. None of the other ones made their appearances, which was really shocking. And I couldn't tell you when or where I first heard about these characters. I mean, they've always been like this part of the... This weird little niche corner of of the DC universe that I've known about, and it took me a while to kind of get into Jack Kirby. Of course, I'm coming at this much later, and especially reading yeah. more of the D- exploring more of DC much later. So it, it took me a while to get into that stuff, and 
I've read some of uh, the original Kirby run of the New Gods and these characters, but uh, not a lot. I, I definitely, of, of all of his work on that, I, I found Mr. Miracle was the character in the book that I found easiest to get into. Um, but I like, on a sort of conceptual level, the, this idea of this war between heaven and hell kind of personified in this, this mm-hmm. new Kirby version of it, which is uh, New Genesis and Apocalypse with the Alf, or the High Father uh, um, that we'll see in the story as a sort of godlike figure versus the devil and dark side. And they've got these, these warriors sort of set between them and all the kind of big concepts. But when it comes to light it's ray... huge concept. It, yeah. When it comes to light ray in particular, I always just think of him as the other one. <laughs> He's not Mr. Miracle or Big Barda or Orion or Metron. He's just that other one. (laughs) And and Mm -hmm. I like his look for as simple as it is, you know, the white costume with like sort of gold accents around the wrist and the headpiece and and kind of like these red highlights. It's a really cool, almost kind of silver agey superhero costume that sets him apart. It makes it kind of striking. Um actually I actually I I might have to take that back. Maybe the first time I saw him was in the Cosmic Odyssey miniseries. And I remember on those covers uh-huh. where you've got a bunch of mainstream heroes and also fourth world characters, just the fact that he's an all-white really set him apart. So I've always liked yeah, that. Yeah, with the bright, bright yellows and the red accents. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it just jumps out of every picture. Yeah, so uh, from a, just a basic conceptual design, I love the look of the character, but... Who is he? What does he do? I've, I've never really known or got into it because he's just – he's that other guy, the one that's not Orion but is yeah. often with Orion. <laughs> so um, He's Orion's happy friend. There you go. He's the smiling one. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, getting into the publication history, uh, prior to this issue coming out, Light Ray only had 15 appearances in the comics before the story. Uh, as you mentioned, he or as we said, he was created by Jack Kirby in 1970. Light Ray debuted in New Gods issue one and thereafter appeared in eight of the original 11 issues of that series. He also made guest appearances during this time in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen issue 141 and Mr. Miracle 18. Like the rest of the New Gods, Light Ray went away on a brief hiatus after DC canceled all of the Fourth World books. He did return in 1976 in first issue special number 13, Mm -hmm. heralding the return of the New Gods, this time by Jerry Conway and Mike Vosberg. One year later, Light Ray and the New Gods did indeed return when the New Gods title resumed with issue 12, as you mentioned. Uh, Again, this was by uh, Jerry Conway and this time drawn by Don Newton. One month before this story was published, the New Gods guest starred in the final issue of Super Team Family. That was it before this one. And then maybe some sporadic appearances before the crisis. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, I just know I, he was in the new the Cosmic Odyssey book, which I, I enjoyed. And I actually talked about that with Paul Hicks on um, the, um, the DC OCD podcast episode. And, Ooh, I'll do that. Listen. And he also uh, he was in the New Gods series that came out after the crisis, and I have that complete series in a box, unread. <laughs> I haven't actually cracked it open, <laughs> but I have all those issues, and I know he was in that one. So, uh, do you know of any other major appearances by Light Ray that didn't get mentioned? Nope. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I took some notes. I did I did a little a little bit of research as well, and that's um, you have just summed up all that I have learned as well. <laughs> I know very little about the presence of the New Gods characters since the New Fifty Two. I know that Orion debuted in the Wonder Woman books. I know that there was some event called the Dark Side War, but I don't know any more than that. So if if this character is appearing right now in some book, I, I would have no idea. Nope. All Welcome right. to being an old man, Ryan. We don't know anything anymore. <laughs> I'm thinking of the Grandpa. You got Simpson. a kid. You don't. You can't have time to go to the comic shop every week. <laughs> I'm thinking of Grandpa Simpson. I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was, and now what I'm with is weird <laughs> and scary. All right. Getting into the story. This Light a Borning is written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Don Newton, inked by Frank Cheramonte, lettered by Tom Klein, and colored by Jerry Serpe. Flying in the air over New Genesis, the hero known as Light Ray observes three children playing near a bomb crater, one of the few remaining blemishes on the otherwise tranquil landscape, an ominous reminder of the great war that once enveloped the planet and its people. Light Ray sees one of the children, a girl named Syndra, trip and fall into the crater. He races down, catches her, and flies her back up to safety. Although the war had ended long before the children were born, Light Ray warns them the crater is still a dangerous place to play. He gathers them around to tell them a story to illustrate his point. In the beginning, there had been one world inhabited by the old gods, but that world was destroyed, split in two. One of the worlds was New Genesis, a land of light. The other was Apocalypse, the land of darkness. For a while there was peace, until Darkseid, Prince of Apocalypse, killed Avia, the wife of Isaiah, the High Father of New Genesis. This plunged both worlds into war. The raging, frenzied combat began with infantry attacks until the weapons of war evolved and took the shape of orbital bombardments. The advancing weapons technology from energy beams to radioactive and biochemical bombs brought untold scores of death to both worlds. But not just death. The radiation from these weapons mutated some of the survivors, creating new races, including the insectoid people of the colony, as well as other more monstrous creatures. Finally, the war ended when Highfather and Darkseid formed a truce. In order to maintain the truce, each of the rulers exchanged an heir to be raised by the other and serve as a hostage to prevent any further hostilities. Isaiah the Highfather would raise Darkseid's son, Orion, on New Genesis, while Darkseid raised Scott Free on Apocalypse. And if you want to hear how that went down, check out Secret Origins Podcast, episode 33, where David A. Gutierrez and I covered <laughs> Mr. Miracle's origin. Light Ray was there on the day Isaiah presented young Orion to the court of New Genesis. Himself just a boy, then called Solace, Light Ray and his friend Metron debated over what kind of fun they could have with Orion. The children interrupt the story at this point, wondering why Light Ray used to be named Solace. He asks if the kids have never wondered why, of all the people on New Genesis, only he has the powers of flight and control of solar energy. Of course they never wondered that. Kids only care about themselves. They're assholes. Anyway. <laughs> Over the next year, young Solus and Orion grew up best friends. Their opposite natures balanced out. Solus was bright, cheery, ever-optimistic, while Orion was... Well, he was the second son of a guy named Darkseid. 
One day, the boys were playing with Metron. He flew them in a flying craft that seated all three, while hinting at his plans to create a smaller personal mode of transport, foreshadowing his Mobius chair. Metron brought Solus and Orion to a bomb crater, not unlike the one that Syndra and her friends were playing at at the beginning of this story. Metron told them this crater had not yet been explored or studied, and it naturally aroused his curiosity. Orion, for his part, couldn't see anything interesting about a hole in the ground, but Solus is excited by the possibilities for adventure. He and Orion climb into the crater using a rope, leaving Metron up top with the flyer. Metron had no interest in studying the crater that closely. He would send the boys to find out what was inside and report their findings back to him. At the bottom of the crater, the boys make an astonishing discovery, an unknown military outpost of Apocalypse embedded on New Genesis. The boys observe the strange soldiers milling about, preparing weapons and tech. Solus, the eternal optimist, is certain the boys can rout the soldiers and capture the outpost all by themselves. He tries to take over an energy cannon, but he's spotted by the soldiers. He discovers too late that the bomb that made this crater back during the war also radiated these soldiers, changing them into solar energy beings needing armor to encase their energy. When Solus is caught, they release their energy, firing blasts of devastating solar radiation into him. Upon seeing his friend probably killed, Orion flew into a rage and attacked the soldiers. He gave a good fight, thrashing several of them, but ultimately he was still only a child and vastly outnumbered. Up top, Metron's equipment register a spike in solar radiation. Wondering if he sent the boys into greater danger than any of them imagined, he takes the flyer and goes down into the crater himself. When he sees the outpost, he sends a drone messenger back to Highfather to bring reinforcements. Then Metron skulks about looking for Solus and Orion. He sees the soldiers carry them into a lab and does something completely out of character for Metron. He takes action. He jumps through a window and fights the soldiers. Deducing their energy forms and how they shoot blasts from their faceplates, he runs between them in a geometric pattern that leads the soldiers to shoot each other on accident. Metron wakes Orion and they check on Solus. Metron is shocked by the amount of radiation the boy has absorbed. Orion vows that if Solus dies, he will kill Metron, but Metron feels guilty enough already. At that point, the forces of New Genesis arrive and take out the remaining Apocalypse soldiers. Solus's body was carried out of the crater at a state near death and brought to Metron's facilities. Over the course of weeks, Metron worked tirelessly to heal the boy. After a month, Solus finally recovered, but his body had been mutated by the solar energy. He begins to fly and glow with energy, and he's rightly terrified because he can't control it. But Highfather calms him down, assuring the boy that he will learn to control it with time. And when that time comes, he must choose a new name, one more fitting of his new life. And thus, Light Ray concludes his story to the children, who now know the danger of playing around bomb craters. Whew, so, Terry, what did you think of the story? Okay. <laughs> um, I don't like this story. <laughs> and I don't like it because it's the secret origin of Light Ray. Solace, who becomes Light Ray. Now, Ryan, you just read the story. Uh, where does Solace live? Uh, New Genesis. Where's his family like? I don't know. How come there are no other children on New Genesis? I don't know. I don't know. 
What's, <laughs> what's society like there? We don't know anything about Solace. All we know is that he's a happy fellow, which is fine. That's that's how Kirby designed these characters. Light Ray, the light in Light Ray uh, stands for the light that he can emit from his body, and it also stands for his personality. It's a light, cheery personality. Orion is a dark personality, which he fights against, and it's a struggle. That's a constant thing. Metron is unemotional. That's why these three are always together in all of these stories. That's what that's the basic Kirby template here. Mm-hmm. But that's it. And so, uh, listeners, I have come here to bury Jerry Conway. <laughs> as much as I admire him, I, I, I have a lot to say about what he wrote with the New Gods. But there's nothing here for Light Ray. Really, the story is an, a curious kid falls in a hole. He gets zapped by some, some mutants and gains powers. And that's all. He did the, the one thing he does is, you know, let's let's uh, capture the the gun and and be heroes. But he's knocked out, you know, in the first round. It's up to um, Orion, and really, it's up to Metron. And I, but it's a great story for Metron. This is one of the few times Metron is actually active mm-hmm. in a positive way in a story. So I, that's why I don't like it. We don't learn anything about Solace or Light Ray. Just that he got zapped and gained these powers. Yeah, I do not disagree with you on anything. Um, I I can't find it in my heart to say that it's a bad story because with a no, degree of no. the, with Jerry Conway and Don Newton involved, I mean they're not going okay. to turn in a bad story. However, exactly. however, I and and I I don't think that's what you were saying, but I do agree with your base point. When I read this story. It did not make me want to read more about these characters, and I actually found it confirming my initial impressions about Light Ray, is that he's just the other one. He's the least interesting among those new gods, because I think, again, getting back to the, the core concepts, as you kind of alluded to, Kirby didn't deal with like the real humanistic the the real natural characters he was always big concept and high themes and these yes. other ideas it was stan lee more often than not that made his characters human and interesting through that characterization yeah. and that's why i think you see the difference between the characters that jack kirby created on his own at dc or later on like with the eternals versus the ones that he did with stan lee across the board the ones he did with stan lee are better characters and they have more more shelf life yeah and so that's it, because if you take uh for fantastic four for instance if mm-hmm. you took any page of the fantastic four and looked at it without the word balloons it's magnificent if you took that same page and looked at the word balloons but no pictures you will still know who is talking. Mm-hmm. Stan was able to give specific voices to that whole stable as a writer and an editor. That's what's, what helps set those things apart. Um, so when Jack is doing stuff like the New Gods, it's just much broader. We're not getting into the subtleties at all. And that's why I'm disappointed in the story. This is this is a secret origin, but this doesn't give us anything about Light Ray or Solace mm-hmm. or about New Genesis or anything else. Now, the art is lovely. I'm mad for Don Newton. <laughs> Although, when I said the first time I, I saw him, I was lukewarm to him, mostly because I, I, I should have looked at the timeline. I don't know if New Gods number 12 was the first Don Newton I saw or if it was Detective Comics immediately following Marshall Rogers. Was, so, wait a minute, this isn't the guy I like. I kind of <laughs> like this drawing. So it's it was something I, I've never liked Frank Chiamonti's inks 
uh, because I thought he was a quite a disservice to Kurt Swan's pencils on Superman. So I've always had uh, my own thing against Frank Schermonti. He does a pretty good job in here, but it's, but it really is lovely drawings. I'm just as a light ray story. I don't like it as an adventure story. I do like it. And um, I was thinking about this as I was reading it again and again. What I think would make it even more interesting if it was Metron's story, because what did Metron do mm-hmm. to Light Ray? Did Metron actually change Light Ray Solace's physical structure with his his solutions and his his metabolism adjusters and all those weird, funky, pseudoscientific things that he can do? And looking at it from that point of view, that'd be that'd be more interesting. I mean, did he have an active part trying to save Solace's life? Did he actually give him superpowers? Right. Maybe. Who knows? But Jerry doesn't tell us that. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and uh, I think oh, so. Okay, so I, I do want to come back to the art too. But yeah, just getting back to that. Oh, I, yeah. I, I would. I agree. I would have rather gotten the story focusing on Metron. Or Orion now. I mean, they got more of the focus in the series, so they didn't. I, I think the mm-hmm. point of this one was to shed more light on Light Ray because, as we were saying, he really is just a foil. He is he is meant to be a contrast to Orion. So he didn't he didn't mm. have much of a personality, as we said, as, as you kind of like mentioned. Yeah, like, well, he's not, a nice guy, and that's yeah, fine. Yeah. He's he's so, a guy who can talk to children. He's a very gentle person. Right. That's wonderful. But you know, what, we don't learn anything. What made him that way? How was he brought up? Was it just, just, was it just natural? There's, there's nothing or, there for it. Or I mean, if if that is the case, and if if you if that's like kind of like locked in, like that is his personality, and you don't want to deviate it, then give him some kind of struggle and shift the focus because you're you're right in that the story is he falls into a hole, he sees some bad guys. He gets shot, and then he wakes up with powers a few weeks later. Yeah, That could be done in a page or two, and the rest of the story could be what comes after with how he, how does he learn to use his powers. How, like, exactly. Like, like the High Father's like, you're going to have to work to master this powers of flight and these powers of, like, and of like this yeah. solar radiation powers. Like, but show do us it off that panel. part. Show us that training of, <laughs> yeah. of how he struggles to give him some, some conflict because, yeah, like, as it was like I mean, he, his, they, from being his origin, he's taken off the board and Orion and Metron do a lot more action in the story. Right, and so you're right. We could, if we saw that part of it, how do, how do you adjust to this? Mm-hmm. Where where does he must? He's got to freak out about it. And you know, does he have a family? And, and would that affect them? Or is he an orphan? Is it's is you know, this is just a year after the uh, the peace of this long war was established. So maybe he has no family. So does and now he's he's a you know he's an outcast. He's a weirdo. How does he? How does he accomplish this? There's no action there, but that's what develops the character. Right. We could have, we could have used a page of that, not just a panel gutter of that. In terms of the arts, um, I like Don Noon. I I agree. I don't think Frank Chiaramonte's inking is the best fit for him. I don't think they they complement each other nicely because this art doesn't wow me the way Newton's art does on either Batman or. Um, Captain Marvel, uh, when when he was drawing mm-hmm. that book for a little while, it's okay. But the other part of it is kind of just again the nature of the setting, and this is 
maybe they were just a little bit hamstrung as a metaphor for heaven or, or some kind of paradisely thing like that. I'm just not really interested in New Genesis as a setting. Just based on the division, mm-hmm. the way Kirby set it up, Apocalypse is the more interesting of the two. Apocalypse is the one that yeah. you, you were visually and thematically drawn to because it's more interesting. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I get, I mean, they um, kind of have to have this sitting here. And I think putting it in these caves and showing that, like, this, this paradise <clears throat> world is still scarred by the war, that's interesting. Well, yeah, that, that's sort of that's a way to set it on Apocalypse while still being on New Genesis, is right. getting to the cave. I just want to, yeah, I want to compliment Don Newton. On page 20, there are two little inset panels of young Orion and young Solace. Mm-hmm. And the picture of Solace is just a beautiful picture of a smiling young boy. It's just lovely. It's it's really wonderful. Agree. I actually. I so, like and there's that. Oh, there are many many panels like that. But that I, I like that whole page. Uh, I like that page yeah, the way the whole, he constructs it because it's it's really it's laid out very differently. It's not just basic grids, but you get the flow of the motion no. of the characters climbing down uh, into the cave through the different. I I like that page a lot. Yeah, and the, and this is where we see Solace being the leader, mm-hmm. being active. He's the one who gets this this rope. It's not and and good good on Jerry for not saying while Solace gets a rope from the flyer, <laughs> he's it's just showing it. Hey guys, let's do a thing. Oh, I don't want to. If we want to do a thing, we're doing this thing. Here's the rope. I'm climbing the tree. I'm going down. That's where I'm interested in this guy Solace. He's so positive. He does help Orion. You know, he's a, he doesn't tease him he is a positive influence on him he's very um honest that way is that a superpower as well does he have this charisma that's unique among the new gods but that's it once he gets down into the cave and he gets zapped he's off he's like you said he's off the table and other things have to happen Hmm. so it's too bad that he's so passive in his origin story once because he he's the one who initiates it uh, I do love the first page of this story, though. Um, just uh, it's it's the standard hero shot. It's it's like oh, yeah. using his power. Like he's not flying like Superman. It almost looks like he's kind of like running across the sky. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's very sort of old gaudy, like Apollo type of thing. That's it's very cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> the very end of the story, High Father's reason for Solus taking a new name. Uh, my my initial thought was it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. They're just doing it for no reason. But I, I guess, I mean, Solus kind of explains it to the kids that by having him take this other name, or is that being Isaiah's suggestion, it's sort of allowing him to reinvent himself, which is a way of getting over the trauma yeah. of sort of fostering his own identity now and, and kind of taking ownership of that. So I think that's kind of what he was going to. Um, it just seems like it's it's very rushed at the at the very end yeah, of the ultimate panel. If we could have that. you know a little bit of a scene about maybe that's a tradition on New Genesis, you know that their 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 rite of passage, their their new name confirmation bar mitzvah kind of thing, but mm-hmm. we don't see that. <laughs> you know, even even if one of the kids could have said, I'm, "I'm I'm looking forward to when I get to choose my new name and I when I become a grown up." Mm-hmm. But we don't we don't learn anything. And if we can segue into about these other new god stories, yeah. or do you want to talk more about this particular story? I don't um, have much more to say about this one. <laughs> <laughs> you inspired me to dig in 
to my comics. And, and I've been wanting to reread The New Gods from the late 70s. So I read this story for the first time in, you know, 20 or 30 years. They didn't think much of it, but I wanted to see it in the context of the, uh, the revival. So I, I started reading them. And it does not hold up very well. There were scenes that I remembered. But the basic problem, and this is all, a uh, little bit is on Don Newton. Don Newton drew every issue but one. That was drawn by Rich Buckler. So if you want some good-looking comics, friends, seek them out. They can't be that expensive if you can find them in the back issues. But the, it's not well-paced. Six new gods have to go to Earth to protect six humans who hold six parts of the anti-life equation. This is the basic story of every new god story. Dark Seed is seeking the anti-life equation. And this is done over and over and over again. So, But they, they all fail. Because issue to issue, things happen because they have to happen. Big fights happen, and we go back to New Genesis. And go back to Earth, and a big fight happens, and we go back, go back to New Genesis. And go back to Earth, and back to New Genesis. Back and forth, no one is actually protecting the people they are sworn to protect. We are introduced to six new gods two of which are new, new, no one has ever seen them before. Uh, one of them is summarily killed off. We know nothing about this person, this new god. We know nothing where he comes from, what he does, how he acts. He's just, oh, he's gone. The other one is essentially a female cyclops from the X-Men. Her, she has beams that come out of her eyes. And we know this because every time she's, her eyes are mentioned, they are called fiery eyes. She of the fiery eyes. And that's about all we know of her. The beams come out of her eyes. Over the, what's it, issue 12 through issue 19, I think, so seven issues, the, the pacing really is, it plods along. And Jerry abandons characters. Metron, in the first issue, goes to New Orleans, and he's never seen again. <laughs> he, so Metron's gone. Instead of coordinating, you know, get, get together, uh, you know, who's got who, who's got this, what's going on? It was very, very disappointing to read it from that point of view. So then I tried to figure out where this issue fit in and also where their super team family appearance fits in. And they don't. In the New God series, there is no, uh, which was edited by Paul Levitz, who was like 21 years old at the time. He was just a kid, for heaven's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing that says, you know, by the way, check out Light Ray's Secret Origin in DC Special. By the way, check out Light Ray and, and Metron and Orion guest starring with Flash. It doesn't happen between issue 16 and 17 or something like that. There's no mention of There's no place in the story. It sort of works if you work backward, but it's it's really a hard thing to wedge in. And again, that's on Jerry because the story was so amorphous. Now, in Jerry Conway's defense, he picked up the story sort of from where it left off, when New Gods was canceled in 1972. And he does bring it to a conclusion. And that the conclusion is after New Gods is canceled in the implosion. So the story ends in the first two issues of Adventure Comics when it goes to dollar-sized. And if, my friends, if you ever see those in the long box, buy them. I get so excited about Adventure Comics, dollar <laughs> comics. It's great stuff. But... That's when it finally, he gets it together, 
he abandons some of the superfluous plot lines. He gets the story together. What it comes down to is that everybody's been expecting everything that but Kirby has foretold since the very beginning. It's a it's a showdown between Darkseid and Orion. No big deal about that. But he does it very well. And the story comes to an end. And it is the end. Two years later, he brings them back in the Justice League to meet the Justice League and Justice Society. And that's a great three-parter. That's much better paced, mm-hmm. by the way. Uh, of course, Jerry had a better hand on the Justice League and the Justice Society. So he can split the, all the three groups up into three sub-team, different sub-teams and have them go at it. And that story also comes to an end. And both of these endings is the end of Dark Side. It's, which is how it should have been. Now, I'm going to blather on just a little bit longer, Ryan, with your permission. Sure. The New Gods stories were reprinted in high-quality paper with no ads in 1984. Uh, I'm missing one of those. So that's one of the things, one of the few comics I, I have to collect. The one issue I'm missing of the New Gods reprint series. But Jack Kirby came back to finish it. New Gods went 1 through 12. In the early 70s, canceled in 1972. Jerry Conway came, uh, 1 through 11. Jerry Conway wrote issue number 12 in 1977. But Kirby came back and said, okay, that didn't happen. Here's the real end to the story. So this reprint series has what should have been New Gods number 12. And it's, uh, this is amazing. I just read this today for the first time in I don't know how long. Now, when I was reading the New Gods revival, I liked the Don Newton art. It's beautiful, but it's kind of staid. It's very formal. It's not stiff. It's just presentational and lovely, but not really exciting. Kirby's art, on the other hand, is all kinds of stiff and all kinds of wonky and all kinds of awkward. But holy mackerel, is it exciting. Every panel just explodes off the page right into my eyeballs. It was amazing how much action and things were happening constantly. And it was just, it was a really exciting thing. And, you know, in 1984, I, I couldn't appreciate that on Kirby. Uh, but now I really can. It's amazing how frenetic and fantastic a comic story is. It was, you now that issue uh, didn't really end the story. The story concluded in a graphic novel called The Hunger Gods, which is also original story by Kirby of the mm-hmm. New Gods. Um, which I need to find, but I don't think that's going to happen soon. But man, after rereading that, his take on the end of the New Gods comic book, it's just fantastic. And also, he does something which I have never seen any other writer do before. We're all used to, <laughs> we're all, I'm sorry for <laughs> assuming, but the basic thing is Orion versus Darkseid, son versus father. Mm-hmm. In Kirby's final story, he brings back Orion's mother, and that's Orion's mission. He's going to Apocalypse, not to fight his father, but to rescue his mother. And all you Freudians out there and post-Freudians <laughs> and, and lovers of ancient Greek drama, it's all right there. It's, it's father and son and mother and son and father versus mother and all that intergenerational battle. But that's something no one else caught on. And even in the New Gods revival, Conway makes mention of Darkseid's wife, or Orion's mother, however you want to look at it. I don't know what the marital status of anybody was on Apocalypse. 
but unfortunately, like I said, it's so unstructured that it's abandoned. That idea is gone. And I really love that idea. That's Orion. He's got his mother love. He was used as a pawn in the war. He was sent away at a very young age. Doesn't mean he doesn't love his mother. He's always loved his mother. And he's going back to rescue her. It was just terrific stuff. Hmm. Wow, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say at the, at the end, my recommended reading, uh, apparently they just released recently a New Gods by Jerry Conway collection. Which has, no kidding! It, it has this story, it has the first issue special with the return, and then collects New Gods 12 through 19. Uh, wow! It, it just finally decided to collect all that. Now well, I'm not so sure if the readers... Gary, help you get some royalties. Yeah, now I'm not so sure if the readers want to take it. <laughs> well, you know, again, the artwork is lovely. Mm. It's beautiful. If in uh, Unfortunately, we lost Don Newton. To, well, the other thing, also looking at this, and again, this is a, as a fan of Don Newton, because I bought all his, his uh, Batman stories, which were just magnificent, and his Captain Marvel stuff. He was still a young artist when he started this series. Mm-hmm. Um, being a comic book illustrator was a part-time job for him. His full-time job was being a high school teacher. So he was literally moonlighting as a comic book artist. And um, this story, not so much, the one we talked about today, The Secret Origin, but the first know, four or five issues of New Gods, it looks lovely. His inker is mostly Dan Adkins. One issue is inked by Joseph Rubenstein, who's one of my favorites. It's just, yeah. that's gorgeous. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. um, but uh, part of it is the story, but the pacing is odd. Mm-hmm. The panel transition can be a little awkward sometimes. Things are not very clear on what's going on. Now, with someone like Kirby, even if something is not clear what's happening, there's usually a lot of excitement behind it. With Newton's art, there isn't the excitement. It's it's just, wow, isn't that lovely? (laughs) (laughs) Not, holy cow, this is coming at me. All right, any final thoughts on the story? Uh, On this story? No. (laughs) No, we've we've covered it. It's it's okay, um, but it's, it's... well, and I'm talking as, you know, a very old, mature comic book fan who's read a lot of other literature. It's not what it could have been. Right. And, I, you know, this talking in a post-Neil Gaiman, post-Alan Moore comic book world, the the intricacies and personal relationships that could have been explored, uh, there wasn't time for it. Maybe it was just needing some distance and needing people who are going to take Kirby's creations and ideas and challenge them and take them in a, in a unique way that makes them their own. I've just, I've never been that interested in the, the seventies continuation by Conway and mm-hmm. Newton. And just based on the story, I'm not really inclined, but I still do have the post crisis new God series, you know, sitting in, in one of my boxes. And, and maybe, most of that was written by Mark Evanier, So that's yeah. probably worth a shot. And maybe, he, maybe I mean, someday I'll, I'll, I'll crack those yeah. open. I've read the post crisis, Mr. Miracle series, which I loved. Mm-hmm. So maybe, uh, but again, it's, it's mostly my take on it is that a lot of creators just want to play with these characters, mm-hmm. but they don't know what to do with them. And where there, there is a chance to look at, well, how does New Genesis work? Mm-hmm. Is everybody there a god? Or is it just Orion and just Light Ray? What about these other people? Is there a society there? I mean, we have to, I mean, I, I, I don't mind the big broad brush, but that's the other thing I wonder about Apocalypse, too. How, do, how does society function? Where does Darkseid 
get all of these warriors. And even in the last Kirby stories, he had abandoned that idea because Darkseid was going mechanized. Everything was mechanized. So he was getting rid of characters and wholesale, too, things he created because that was a, that's what Darkseid would do. Um, oh, what was I, I was, I was going to say something. There were, there were a few, Jerry Conway did have a couple of great insights, though. Uh, it just took a while to get there. He did a nice wrap-up in tying in the Forever People series, which I have not read, although – there was, I think it was a Find Your Joy episode in the Fire and Water Network with Rob and uh, and the wonderful uh, Zoom, Zoom Yukinori, mm-hmm. talking about the last issue of, of Forever People. So Conway takes away from the last issue of Forever People and melds it into the series of New Gods. It just, it just takes too long to get there. And he brings it all together with Darkseid seeking the anti-life equation, what that means where it could come from, and the anti-life equation is the source. And if you've read any any of these fourth world stories, you all know what the source is. They are one and the same, and that's what leads Darkseid to the source at the end of Conway's story. And it works. I think it works fine. There's another brief reference where uh, these are the new gods, uh, but the old gods were the ones who created Earth and created man in their image, and that's why the the new gods look like people of earth <laughs> and one of the letter writers wrote in perhaps these old gods also went to krypton and thanagar and ran other places like that <laughs> <laughs> that's why all these people look the same oh yeah but it seems to me that ever since then though people just want to do the new gods. they want to do dark side and orion dark side and orion dark side and orion and it's it's dark side has omega effect and orion has the astro force and these don't really mean anything. All they do around is to zap things. <laughs> and that's the same thing. That's the problem with, with this. Back to the story of the secret origin of Light Ray. Light Ray gets zapped by these weird energy being mutants. And what can he do? Well, he can fly and he can zap with light. Because none of their powers are ever explained. No. They just zip around and zap. Yeah. I mean, yeah, getting back to it, I mean, like, of all the characters, like, Light Ray is the one who has a sort of superhero code name type of thing mm-hmm. when the other characters don't. And, like, he actually brings, he's like, hey, haven't you kids ever wondered why I'm the only one who can fly and, like, do these things? Like, and who knows if Kirby even cared to think about, like, an explanation for something like that or if it didn't matter because it's just like, this, you're not really getting it. But I don't Yeah. Well, in, even then, uh, I just read, you know, seven or eight stories written by Jerry with, featuring Light Ray. And all he does is fly and zap. Mm-hmm. Kirby says, oh, he can create these light illusions. He, he creates these delusions while he's being chased by these, these parademons on Apocalypse, and they, they attack the illusion. They all fall into a canal. <laughs> and in three panels, we see Light Ray actually do something and explain what he's doing and how he's doing it. That's all we need. Yeah, he can fly and he can zap. What can he do with these light powers? Can he construct things like a Green Lantern or not? Does it, is, is it just, is it heat? Is it light? Are they form? It's just zapping. The opportunities that were missed. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, Terry, uh, thank you very much for talking to the, this story with me for Secret Origins Podcast. Uh, I'm glad you finally got your chance to be on the show. <laughs> I'm so excited. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, any projects or anything else that you would like to plug while you're here? Yes, I would. Thank you very much for asking me. Uh, I have uh, some. I'm not a podcaster or a blogger. I do have some presence on uh, what's the what's the social media thing? Twitter. I'm on Twitter 
and on, as Ward Hill Terry. I'm on Facebook as well. And I'm also, I also play in, in a rock and roll band. Uh, the band name of the band is Stop Calling Me Frank. And we have just released our second record, which is available on Bandcamp. It's called Haberdashed on Rumbar Records. So go to Rumbar Records' website. Look for Stop Calling Me Frank. We have two records out. And there are a couple of singles you can get as a free download. So check out the offerings from Rumbar Records if you like good rock and roll music. And if you don't like good rock and roll music, then you can listen to Sean Ross's music collection. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much for being on this episode. It was great to talk to you again. Uh, Folks, we're going to take another promo break right now, but we will be back in a minute with one more origin story. And I promise you, Jerry Conway did a better job on this one. Your white privilege. What is that? <laughs> Does skin color really have any bearing on who you are as a person? I'm so upset that we don't want to see cops killing unarmed people in the streets of America. Like, why? The BET Awards were last night. Notably, they were very black. Oh, but can I say that? There's a difference between having a point of view and being a part of it. trying to kill them or scare them? Killing is scary. Names, no number, just straight pleasure. No, I don't condone it, but I understand that. Every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. Because it's early on when you make the big mistakes that cost you millions down the road. One of the things that we all have in common is that we all draw a line somewhere. <clears throat> Questions. We don't have answers. It's a podcast dedicated to tackling society's most quizzical queries and persistent problems. Each episode sees host Donovan Morgan Grant. So you're having a non-minority represent a minority and tell the story of a minority but not with an actual minority. And Harrison Chu. Essentially how you can have your cake and eat it too. But I really wish you wouldn't. As they confront questions that afflict our everyday existence, such as, can war end? I don't know. Is there a morality to sexual fantasies? I don't know. When is killing justified? I don't know. Are there things comedians shouldn't joke about? I don't know. Can you be outraged on other people's behalf? I don't know. Nobody knows everything, but everyone knows something. Society's ills will be fought by that society. Become a creative contributor to the show by sending in a question or providing your voice and opinion on an existing episode. People are just so afraid of being thought of as assholes when everybody already thinks of them as assholes. It's amazing. That sounds like a Facebook quote. (laughs) (laughs) Questions will be asked and answers will be questioned. So join Donovan and Harry as they invite you each week for a discussion of questions we don't have answers. We didn't even talk about Japan in this one. I think they did well. (laughs) The show can be found at questionsnoanswers.com on iTunes and right into the show at qnoanswers at gmail.com. I would be complex. I would be cool They'd say I played the field before I found someone to commit to And that would be okay for me to do Every conquest I had made would make me more of a boss to you I'd be a fearless leader, I'd be an alpha type When everyone believes ya, what's that like? I'm so sick of running as fast as I can Wondering if I'd get there quicker if I was a man And I'm so sick of them coming at me again Cause if I was a man Then I'd be the man I'd be the man I'd be the man We're back with our final story for this episode And it's fitting perhaps that for me It's a trip back to the beginning 
joining me for the first time is a podcaster that I have known and respected for a long time, but for different reasons, mostly his close association with Stella, I have never actually had an occasion to talk to him until now. You ought to know him as the host of Questions We Don't Have Answers and a contributor to several shows on the Batman universe. He is also a freelance writer for DC Universe. Secret admirers, please welcome Mr. Donovan Morgan Grant to the show. What's up? <laughs> hello. Hello, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me on, and uh, thank you for that rather splendid intro. I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh you were on my shortlist for potential guests for the original Secret Origins podcast that, for whatever reason, I, I just I ran out of time. I ran out of issues for that, so I never got around to asking you. Um, but because of that, you were the first person I reached out to when this new episode came up. And I gave you your choice of the three stories in this issue, Dr. Fate, Light Ray, or Black Canary. And you picked Black Canary. Why did you want to talk about her, and what has been your experience with a character up to this point? I, I just think she's cool. <laughs> um, I, I like I like Doctor Fate. I don't know much about Light Ray beyond the basics, but I, I have a basic appreciation for him. But um, Black Canary is a character that I have. Like, there's two sides to it. There's, I mean, because I'm, I'm not an expert uh, by any stretch, but there's like the sort of like comic history. Uh, appreciation side because she was a, a member of the JSA. She's been around for a while, and um, I'm probably most familiar with her through Green Arrow comic books because I'm a Green Arrow fan. Um, and on a pure like fan level, I really fell for the character during her appearances on Justice League Unlimited when she was voiced by Marina Baccaro. And like like that intro sequence to the Cat and the Canary, <laughs> I thought was just like, wow, she's super cool. So like uh, when you were like giving me the options, I, I was like. Yeah, Black Canary, and I—I've I, never really talked about her on a podcast. I, I would not say that like she's in my like, my top ten favorite characters exactly, but she's 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 definitely one of my favorite um, female uh, DC heroes for mm. sure. Yeah, um, and this is sort of rehashing some of the things I said back on episode fifty, but that's been several years since then. So, uh, kind of going back through my own history, I I knew of her vaguely, and I think probably the like my my first impressions of her was that she was a cheesecake character um, because I always saw her with the, with the fishnets and and cleavage and everything, and I didn't really take her seriously. But uh, you know, five or six years ago, I was looking for a DC character to blog about or podcast about, and a lot of my other favorites were taken. Um, so I was like, well, you know, Black Canary, she does have quite a big history. You know, she kind of like there's stuff from the Golden Age, there's stuff from the Silver Age, stuff in the Bronze Age. There's the more modern stuff with Birds of Prey, and as you said, the JSA and JLA. Was, she's kind of all over the place, so I would never be lacking in material to talk about. And mm-hmm. as I kind of explored her her history and the character through that, just as, like as an excuse to blog about her. I really did become fascinated by how complicated that history was and and who she was and how she connected with other characters. What turned me off more recently and what I kind of got sick of was seeing how much she is defined by her connection to other characters and how much of <laughs> her... We'll, we'll get a little bit into this later on, but it, it seemed like she was always either Ollie's girlfriend... And she was defined by her relationship to him. And the more I read of that, especially in the the Bronze Age, the more I 
got to not like that relationship and, and found it pretty unhealthy. Um, and, then, <laughs> yeah. and then even in once she joined, uh, once she became part of the Birds of Prey under Chuck Dixon and Gail Simone, the stories that she was a part of were much more rich and interesting and enjoyable. But I still found that book, the heart and soul of that book, was Barbara, and Dinah was just kind of the the her her agent, the the legs and the fists that she had. Number two, yeah. So it was a character that I I wanted to love, but I was always like, she is a. She is the consummate supporting character or partner, more so than a, a standalone. Did you ever read? Um, it was around 2006, like, like the Brian Meltzer, I think the later Dwayne McDuffie, like Justice League title. Because mm-hmm. I, because obviously, yeah, like the big three, like the Trinity in there. But I, I seem to recall she was in a leadership position, or like she, she was, was, like she was, position. she was the, she was the de facto leader of the Justice League of America at that time. But it was one of those things where just through story reasons, you know, like, okay, you can be the leader, but when Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman are on the team, are you really the leader? Like, whose lead are you really following? And once McDuffie took over the book, that was when he he wasn't able to use any of the big three because they were all sort of embargoed doing their own things. But, uh, right. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a a totally valid uh, view of the character. And uh, having not read uh, as much Birds of Prey as I wish I would have had, I can't deny that, like, yeah, that is, that is you know, a Babs and Dinah book rather than, like, a Dinah solo series. And that, to my knowledge, I don't know if Dinah's ever had – okay, no, she did have a solo series by um, – uh, oh, it was Brendan Fletcher. Brendan Fletcher, yeah, yeah. like the, the rock and roll series. And that was, to- that was a really good series. I reviewed that. It was written by Brendan Fletcher, the artist, or inter- – intermixed it was Annie Wu and then Sandy Jarrell and that was a very very fun book but to me I always felt like I was reading a Vertigo or indie title it was so different and it was so isolated I never felt like I was reading the same Dinah okay yeah okay gotcha it was too different okay I understand Anyway, uh, let's get to her publication. Actually, that's a good segue to her publication history. Since I have covered some of this on a previous podcast, I'm really just going to focus on the first part of her history that leads up to the story we're going to cover. Black Canary was created in 1947 by writer Robert Kaniger and artist Carmine Infantino. She debuted as a femme fatale in the Johnny Thunder strip of Flash Comics number 86. She went on to guest star in four of the next five Johnny Thunder stories, but starting with Flash Comics number 92, Black Canary starred in her own ongoing feature, Replacing Johnny Thunder. That issue marked Black Canary's first cover appearance, as well as the introduction of her civilian identity, that of florist Dinah Drake and her supporting cast member slash love interest, Private Eye Larry Lance. Thereafter, Black Canary stories appeared in every issue of Flash until the series was canceled with issue 104 in December of 1948. Concurrent with her stories in Flash comics, Black Canary started appearing in the Justice Society of America's Adventures in All-Star Comics, beginning with issue 38. She became an official JSA member in All-Star 41 and would remain in that series until it, too, was canceled with issue 57 in 1950. That was Black Canary's last appearance until 1963, at which point she would appear twice a year in the regular Justice League, Justice Society crossovers in the pages of Justice League of America. 
1969, following the death of her husband during one of these crossovers, Black Canary left the JSA of Earth-2 to join the JLA of Earth-1 in Justice League of America number 74, and would stay with the team, appearing in many of their adventures until the mid-1980s. In 1970, only a few months after she came to Earth-1, Black Canary started appearing in Green Lantern, Green Arrow. She formed a romantic relationship with Green Arrow that would define much of the rest of her publishing history. After Green Lantern, Green Arrow, the Canary spent the 1970s and early 1980s appearing in backup strips in Action Comics, Detective Comics, and World's Finest Comics. That's where I was going to leave off. Um, however, I do want to make mention of some of her more recent appearances. In, in, in the comics world, I know that she has come back in uh, the, the Green Arrow Rebirth series. And, gosh, how many years has that been going on now? Is that three years old? Golly, I feel like we might be on four. <laughs> okay. So I, I don't even know if it's still called Rebirth or whatever. Um, I haven't been following that book. I read the first two issues, um, and it's more of a case of just not being interested in Green Arrow stories and their relationship. I do want to mention, though, that just looking at the art, Otto Schmidt draws a hell of a Black Canary. I mean... Did you see that um, That he posted on Twitter recently, like, I, like he drew like 50 of her designs yes. over the years. Yeah, I think, it was, I think I just saw it yesterday, as of the time we're recording this. Um, like, all of her different incarnations throughout history, including, like, alternate universes, in the Arrowverse and other media, and basically any kind of co- like costume she has ever worn, he drew a version of it. It's incredible. Yeah, um, it's amazing. She is. Uh, he he makes her look sexy as hell, um, despite not having the the kind of classical style. He he definitely has a more sort of stylized, cartoonish look. But she looks great. But she also looks tough. She looks competent. She looks like a fighter. I mean, I I would read the hell out of a solo series if he was going to tackle one for her. Getting into her more mainstream appearances, uh, she has also recently appeared in live action on the in the Arrowverse TV shows, played by uh, thirteen different actresses. <laughs> I know it, it, it's 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 crazy. I mean. One of them is called Kate Cassidy. Uh, the other is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I watched I watched the first three seasons of Arrow, three and a half or something like that. Um, I really really liked Katie Lotz in the role. I know she was playing Sarah Lance, not technically Dinah, but she was the first one to be Black Canary. Um, and for being an original take on the character, I thought she was pretty cool. I liked her backstory and like how they developed her. I thought she looked great. She was cool. She was tough. Uh, also sexy, which is an important part of the character. I thought they did that great. I didn't like it when they killed her off and replaced her with her sister, uh, Laurel, uh, played by Kate Cassidy, who I, I also think was fine, but I just never liked her as much. And then when Katie Lotz came back as White Canary for uh, the Legends of Tomorrow, I thought it was interesting, but just so far removed from the, from the source that she was really a, a different character. Um, and then I have no idea what's going on with the third actress to play the part. I, 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 yeah, I'm completely out of touch with those now. I mean, I never saw Arrow, but like uh, from what I understand, they never actually had a straight-up Dinah Lance character. It was always topsy-turvy and different people, different universes, all that kind of thing. Yeah, it was always it was always more complicated than it needed to be. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, most recently, this past year, she appeared on the big screen played by Journey Smollett in Birds of Prey and the ill-conceived R-rated Harley Quinn, which uh, <laughs> there might be there might be another name for it. Um, 
I would like to talk about talk about that movie later on, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. Any other uh, appearances that you can think of, like notable, other than those? I believe her first media appearance, and I'm free to get this wrong, would have been like the Birds of Prey live action show. Did you mention that? No, but you're right. I think, yeah, she was in that. And then I know she appeared in Smallville. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah with, with, like, with the painted mask, which I didn't <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, so. Uh, and actually, I would have completely forgotten about that, except I know that, that um, Otto Schmidt drew that version of the character also in in his little, uh, little portrait of uh, of different costumes. So, I mean, I would say that like uh, her anime appearances are consistently great that I've seen. I mean, I was actually watching uh, the other day the Be- uh, Batman Brave and the Bold show, which featured the Justice Society and got, but it was also like I think Black Canary was, was sort of a central character in that. Yeah. All right, then. Let us get into the story. The Canary is a Bird of Prey is written by Jerry Conway, penciled by Mike Vosberg, inked by Terry Austin, lettered by Shelley Lefferman, and colored by Mario Sen. The story opens with a mobster named Rico climbing out his window in a desperate attempt to evade capture by Green Arrow. In the alley, however, Rico is confronted by Black Canary, who disarms him, and then Judo flips him into a pile of trash. Green Arrow catches up to them and, without much of a natural segue, pointedly asks his girlfriend if she ever regrets not living what most people would consider a normal woman's life. Rather than pulverizing Ollie's testicles for the shameful question, Black Canary actually gives the matter some thought. To understand why Dinah dresses up and fights crime on a nightly basis, we need to understand the road she took to get here. The story flashes back to Dinah's past when she was a girl, roughly 10 years old. We're in the Gotham City of Earth 2. Young Dinah is at home with her father, Lieutenant Richard Drake of the Gotham PD. Richard's father-daughter time is spent coaching Dinah in boxing, gymnastics, and physical conditioning. He's turning her into a fighter, or at the very least, a woman who can defend herself. But he panics when it looks like Dinah injures herself working out. As Richard comforts Dinah, calling her his little bird, he glances across the room to a photo of his recently deceased wife. The lack of a maternal influence had a profound impact on Dinah. Richard didn't know how to raise a daughter in the traditional mold, so he brought her up like a son, someone he could relate to. And Dinah neither resents nor regrets his parental approach. Maybe it's because her father is all she has now, too, but she desperately wants his love and approval, so she dives right into the physical training he puts her through. When she gets hurt and Richard realizes he's pushed her too far, it's Dinah who refuses to back down. And so, over the years, she continues to hone her body into a lean fighting machine, while sharpening her mind and spirit by studying law and reading stories about vigilantes. Richard brought Dinah on ride-alongs so she could see police work in action, and she eventually graduated with a degree in criminal psychology. Dinah was becoming a cop just like Dad. That was the clear trajectory of her life. But, of course, a woman detective didn't sit well with some people, namely the other police in Gotham who thought Richard Drake was crazy to raise his daughter to do a man's job. One night... Dinah, now a college graduate, still determined to prove herself qualified to fight crime, meets her father's partner, Larry Lance. Larry comes across as chauvinistic and piggish, and from this first meeting, you would never guess that Dinah and Larry would end up married, you know, unless you've seen any romantic comedy ever. 
Richard, <laughs> Richard Drake and Larry Lance go to raid a gambling den that's supposed to have minimal security, but when they kick in the door, they are met by mob enforcers with heavy weapons. Richard and Larry are trapped, and their deaths are all but assured, except Dinah didn't sit on the sidelines like she was told. She sneaks into the den and surprises the gunman, jumping them from behind. A karate chop to one guy's neck and a kick to another guy's face is all it takes to secure the room and bust the mobsters. Larry Lance is duly impressed by what he sees in Dinah, not just in her fighting spirit and ability, but in her brains and beauty. For reasons unexplained, Dinah begins to fall for Larry, too. One night after a date, Larry drives her home and asks her the same question that Green Arrow asks at the beginning of the story. Why does Dinah want to do a man's job? Dinah says, you still don't understand, do you? Because you're a man, you can take any career you want. But because I'm a woman, my choices are supposed to be limited. You make it an either-or situation. Either I'm a female and I do female things, or I'm not because I don't. That's your perspective, Larry, not mine. I don't choose to be limited. I want to be a woman and a cop. One doesn't have to exclude the other. That's what Dinah thinks, but the Gotham Police Academy doesn't see it that way. Her application is rejected, and the disappointment is such that Richard Drake suffers a fatal heart attack, in essence, dying of a broken heart. Dinah uses the money from her father's insurance policy to open a flower shop, one of the few hobbies she acquired from her mother. But life as a florist is a poor consolation prize, and Dinah won't quit the crime-fighting dream she shared with her father just because the police rejected her. Taking inspiration from the likes of Batman and Green Lantern, Dinah Drake adopts a flashy costume to battle criminals from slightly outside the law. Dad always called me a little bird, she says, so that's the kind of name I'll take, the Black Canary. From there, we get a rapid-fire recounting of Black Canary's first meeting with Johnny Thunder in Flash Comics 86, which led to her eventually joining the Justice Society of America. She married Larry Lance, who had quit the force to work as a private detective. She briefly retired from crime-fighting only to return for a climactic adventure when the Justice Society of Earth 2 teamed up with the Justice League of Our Earth. During this epic team-up, Larry Lance died, sacrificing himself to save her from a cosmic being called Aquarius, as told in Justice League of America 74. After the death of her husband, Dinah joined the Justice League, leaving the JSA and her home dimension. Earth 2 was full of too much death and disappointment. She had more opportunity to develop as a woman and as a character on Earth 1, and that's where she would partner with Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow. Which brings us to the present. Ali repeats the question from 12 pages ago. Does she regret her life's direction? Dinah tells him her only regret is for the people she has loved and lost. And that concludes The Canary is a Bird of Prey. All right, Don, what did you think about this story? Oh, my God. No, no. <laughs> this, was, this was entertaining. I am aware of the fudged-up history of Dinah Lance. Or, yeah, she's just Lance in this story. Like, I've, cause I've yeah. heard it all. Donna Drake, Donna Lance, Laurel Lance, all that kind of stuff. And as much as I like the character, I've not really investigated into her origin stories. And I was aware of the whole, she comes from Earth 2, now she's an Earth 1 kind of thing. I know that's eventually done away with, um, but I mentioned earlier that like I had the um, aforementioned O'Neill and Adams Green Lantern, Green Arrow run where she appears. Mm-hmm. And they don't mention that at all. 
they do mention that she, you know, like when Green Arrow starts courting her, she's like, oh, I'm still trying to recover of the loss of um, Larry. But they don't really get into the whole, you know, dimension hopping thing. So it's always kind of an interesting part of her history. But seeing this as, as linear and kind of like chronological as it is, I found it interesting. It's, it's very straightforward. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's particularly dynamic. And I honestly, I kind of laughed at like the whole, you know, her father read her rejection from the police academy and, and died. Um <laughs> But I do think that it's evident that Jerry Conway has a very, very feminist mind in writing this origin story. Like, there's a lot of that acknowledgement, you know, oh, you're a woman, and especially in Earth 2, which is, you know, kind of defined by a lot of the World War II era mindset. There's a lot of, like, uh, limitations and, and um, obstacles put in her way, and she's always shown to be somebody who doesn't shirk from that. Right. And always tries, tries to tries to follow, follow her own sense of destiny, and I think that's, that's good. Um, because I imagine back around this time you can only say so much about the character before running up into that and to the limitations of because she doesn't have a wonder woman's origin where wonder woman started out extremely proto-feminist i mean she is kind of a victim of her own time and from what i understand you don't get into a lot of the really kind of gutsy stuff until like the 80s i mean i'm free to be curtain on that but for what this was you know this wasn't like a, just a simpering like stanley written female character where it's just kind of hard to read i thought it was pretty um its heart was in the right place and i enjoyed it for what it was yeah and uh, i mean conway was making the story up out of of the blue like he he had been writing the character in justice league of america and in some of the backup strips from like world's finest and other stories so he probably had as much experience with the character as anybody from like the the bronze age going forward um but this i mean the character had been around at this point for about 40 years and never had an origin story Wow. Um, so so he made this one up entirely and gave her that background. He he crafted it. And I really liked, short of having a, a tragedy inspiring the character or something like that, if you're going to have a character take up a vigilante you know quest or something, and if they're not inherently super powered, you know, if they it's not like, you know, Spider Man, you know, getting bitten, having this, you know, the great power and great responsibility talk with mm-hmm. Uncle Ben. Um th- I mean, if you're really going to put your life in danger like that, and if it's not because you witnessed your parents being murdered and, and it kind of broke something inside you, why are you going to do it? And I like that he made her inner motivation all about this dedication and this sense of service. Um, that this was something that she grew up in. She came from this cop family, and and this was like the lifestyle that she chose. It's very similar, I think, to what how Greg Rucka approached the the modern Batwoman uh, in making her. She was committed to a military service, but because of her homosexuality, she was drummed out of the court or out of the. Was she a marine or was she in the army? Uh, I forget which, but I was about to say that. It actually reminds me a lot of. Um of Barbara Gordon, particularly Batgirl Year One. Yeah, actually, she's brought yeah, up in a yeah. cop family, and she feels the, she she feels a need to help as well. Right, and it's I mean, it's something they they sort of they kind of bond over too, especially, um, well, like in the the post crisis, like the Birds of Prey stories, that that'll be a, uh, more of a thing about their shared you know growing up with cop fathers and stuff like that. But yeah, so I think having her have that inner motivation, that sense of service, that this was she was committed to the quest for justice. And law and order and peace and everything like that. Like, that was what was driving her for her entire life. And then the system failed her. And later revisions of the story have, um, for instance, the, the Secret Origins retelling done in issue 50 of the series that I covered that was written by Alan Brenner. That adds the layer of, 
you know, the the mobsters that like that she helped take down with her dad, you know, they had their they had their fingers in the police department and they were really basically punishing Richard Drake and his family and his daughter and everything for that bust. So they kind of blocked her her uh, her appointment to to the they they were like she can be like a desk clerk or something like that, but she'll never be she'll never wear a uniform and like and like walk a beat or, or actually. Um, so it, part of his part of Richard Drake's failing health was just knowing that like the the system was actually corrupt that like the police had been you know corrupted and taken over and he couldn't fight that and it was blocking her um so that also gives her more motivation to fight outside the law and take on the vigilante quest so i just think that was it was a cool little streamlined version of who she is and the i mean so this is the first appearance of, this is the first like ever we hear of like her father yeah, I believe yes. Yeah, I, I'm sure this okay. is uh, he. Richard Drake was con- in, invented entirely for that. Um, the f- this is also I think this is the first time where they mentioned that Larry Lance had been a cop before he became a private eye. Uh, he was yeah when he was first created in her solo series he was just he was the the private eye who like hung around her flower shop and everything like that it was like adjacent to his office and didn't know that she was black canary at the time because she would wear a throw on a wig and the fishnets and everything Um, (laughs) i love that (laughs) what did you think about the art in the story i thought it was good i think in the beginning i was really struck by how gangly uh both father and daughter looked like they're very very like it actually kind of reminded me of some of um uh neil adams more kind of energetic work on uh, green arrow greenland and we're like i'm not sure how old she's supposed to be but she in that kind of like onesie she looks very very lanky and stuff yeah she does <laughs> yeah but she has that like yvonne craig uh kind of like bob haircut which almost kind of looks like a like a, a raven's wing like a canary's wing mm-hmm. um, which yeah. is interesting but like um you know you know it was funny because I, I was actually the page where we first see the flashback where she's like jumping rope and stuff right i was trying to figure out who the artist was before i went back to the credits and i was thinking oh is this marshall rogers because he kind of draws in a similar style especially with that sort of like um red circle boxy kind of background in the final panel but no it's it's um uh mike vosberg which i've never seen before so this is my first time seeing him i actually i knew mike vosberg from the gi joe comics in the 80s um, he he did a okay. run on GI Joe of um, of stories that I actually love, but I don't think his art was that great. And if I had to guess, I would actually think uh, Terry Austin, the inker, is doing a lot of work on this. Um, probably, That's why I thought of probably, Rogers. Uh, yeah, okay. I I think like any any comparisons to Marshall Rogers and Neil Adams that you're seeing, I have a feeling that's probably Terry Austin's influence because. This art does not look like the the Mike Vosberg art I see on GI Joe, which would have been five years after this. Uh, did you like it in this? I did, I did. Yeah, I, I mean, I was I was struck like again how how lanky and angular like everybody looks a little bit kind of like jagged and and dagger like. Um, yeah, it's a little like Loop on the Third if you've ever seen that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I thought I thought it was fine. It was serviceable. There were some. I mean, there there's some action paces when they're. I mean, on uh, page seven when uh, Richard and and Larry are actually jumping through the window into the gambling den. It's like I know. really like all that shattering glass. They couldn't have found a better better method of entering. Um, that point, like, what's the difference between them and superheroes? I mean, they'll do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think you know the the uh, second to last page when Dinah's putting on the costume for the first time. There, there's the gratuitous butt shot, which I like. 
I mean, you know, I, I you know, that's, that's part of the, that's part and parcel with the character. It's notable that she's in Gotham City, because uh, this is like, like, like meant to be like the Earth Two Golden Age. Because I know that like uh, Alan Scott originated from Gotham City, and so the fact that she kind of takes inspiration from the two of them, I find that to be an interesting detail. Which I don't know, is that, I don't know if that's carried over in Post Crisis. Yeah, oh gosh, let me think. Now, I this might be the first time. This also might be the first time that she was established as being from Earth to Gotham City. I don't, I don't know if that came up beforehand in any of the, like. It wasn't in the Golden Age stories, and I don't think it was in okay. any of her Silver Age appearances. I bet this is probably the first time she was set in Gotham. And then, yeah, then once so yeah, getting into the the complicated history that you alluded to after this story is published, Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas wrote a two-part story in Justice League of America, I forget the issues, 219, 220 maybe, um, which tried to explain, basically they tried to de-age her, because based on the timeline, even with the uh-huh. story, if she had been around since, you know, if she had been an adult in the 1930s and 40s operating in that, and then even when she comes to, you know, Earth 2, and she's with, like, is she... 20 years older than Green Arrow like as they're all aging like at, at what point is I was going to so- ask about that because if you read those that those, that Green Arrow O'Neill stuff she seems like she's like 25 in those and that's certainly how O'Neill and, and everybody was trying to portray her but I think like they, they just kind of got hung up on the continuity which is right Thomas's thing, um, so we, he kind of came up with this idea that when she came over from Earth Two, there was this—is this even worth explaining? <laughs> it would be—it would be easiest to just say it was a clone, but it was more like a an unborn daughter that was put in suspended animation that was then her memories and her essence were transferred into her daughter's body that could grow up to be. Uh, you know, a supple, young, hot, twenty-year-old Black Canary instead of uh, in an older, like you know, stately Earth Two figure. Um, and my brain. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so they come up with that, and they're like, "There, that's that. We fixed the whole thing." And now, now she's age appropriate for Green Arrow. Whereas anybody who's reading it is like, "You think that was a fix? You think that made the story better?" And I like then, I like how that centers around like you know we need to make this okay for Green Arrow, not for the character. Exactly, exactly. Of course. Um, so then, by the time they got to post crisis, they're like, "You know what? We're just going to say it's two different characters. We'll we'll lean into the mother daughter effect." And yeah. Dinah Drake and then her married name, Dinah Lance, was the older one who was part of the JSA, and she was a superhero in the war years. And then she had a daughter, Dinah Laurel Lance, who was then a founding member of the Justice League of America because the mm-hmm. new post-crisis Wonder Woman origin uh, made it so that she wasn't a founding member of the JLA. And then that same Dinah uh, became a member of Birds of Prey. So uh legacies and and yeah, complications in history that's that's why i like this story because it's very it's a very simple story and you don't have to worry about any of that well i mean like i was going to say like like which one is your preferred origin cuz i i'm not, i don't love the whole oh she traveled through different earths and you know you, you have to ask like how old is she precisely to green arrow like i, I and you know i'm a kid of the 90s i grew up with the post crisis version of dc her having the mother to me, it's like, oh, okay. It, it, there's far less uh, arithmetic for me to kind of work in. But which is your preferred take on her? So the the revised origin that was done in 1990 uh, by Alan Brennert, he had to make sense of all of that complicated history stuff, and he did as 
good a job as you could expect. And he's Alan Brenner for only writing like a dozen comics. He's really, really, really good. Uh, and everybody else on the Fire and Water Network will sing his praises. Uh, he, he's really good, and he told a good story. I tend to favor this story because it's more streamlined and it doesn't have to work on it. Up to that same thing that you point out with having to cross over universes. And the more I've been thinking about this... Denny O'Neill was the one who brought her over. He was writing JLA for a brief time, and he he killed off Larry, and he brought her in, basically because Wonder Woman, he was writing Wonder Woman out of Justice League of America, and the book needed a token female superhero. So he decided to bring Black Canary over as the, as the girl on the team. Gotcha. And and that I mean and then he he I mean to his credit that he picked her up and used her in in Green Lantern Green Arrow and gave her uh, you know some prominence and being drawn by Neil Adams didn't didn't hurt um, so that but that also kind of shackled her forevermore to Green Arrow uh, and, and she was kind of defined by that if I could go back and alter history I would have had if if Denny O'Neill had to have a new female superhero on the on the league to replace Black Canary, to replace Wonder Woman. He should have gone with Zatanna, who had been introduced in a, a sort of build-up that culminated in a story about one year earlier, where she, like the the sort of Justice League, hel- came together to help her save her father and, and find her father, and she sort of just come into her own. And how cool would it have been if Zatanna, going forward at that point, had been the tenth or tenth member of the Justice League and, and was like there, therefore like the new defining woman. And she would have been a stronger character because she had the magic and she you really could have developed her and make her a powerhouse worthy of worthy worthy of standing shoulder to shoulder with the likes of Green Lantern and Superman and these other characters. Um, whereas Black Canary, even when they give her the Sonic Scream she it's you know she's not up to that level and in doing so i think i think black canary would have worked if she had stayed part of the jsa and that universe and she was always just regulated to those the same time like anytime you got stories of the jay garrick flash and the alan scott green lantern and wildcat and our man you can have black canary in those shots and she just stayed part of that golden age world. I think it would work because I think her costume also looks like something out of that time. I I used to kind of mistakenly think. I mean, I, I think there is a there is a more modern trend to make the fishnets look a little bit trashier and sluttier. If I can use the words. Um, <laughs> yeah, there are more holes in it lately. <laughs> yeah, uh, and there's a way of doing that to make her there's a version of black canary that wears that look and looks really cool and tough uh like the brennan fletcher annie woo series like if you make her like a rock star like that then yeah absolutely she that that look can work and kick ass but the costume as depicted here i see her as more like there's something kind of classically sexy about it that isn't you know she's not showing off the legs she's accentuating that but it, it's sort of like a um uh, like a playmate, like grotto hostess, but with a jacket on and everything <laughs> like that, and and but it's also it's supposed to be it's supposed to be sexy. I mean that that is part of the the idea of her wearing the wig and sure. the low cut shirt and everything like that. It's supposed to men are supposed to underestimate her. Mm-hmm. I, I, I suppose it's a different. There's a couple of differences in between her and like somebody like Power Girl mm-hmm. in terms of like costumes that are clearly meant to just be like 
like fan service, like etchy, you know, kind of kind of costumes that just accentuate a female form. I mean, she's clearly meant to, I, I, as you say, it, it's it's not an accident. It's clearly intentional that she's meant to be sexy from like a 1940s standpoint because she's wearing like those kind of like um those boots, right? And and like the the leggings and also the choker as well. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, for one thing, it's it's a, aside from a couple of times starter history, it's a look that she's pretty much owned to where I've never seen it as like, oh, this is a trash. I mean, at least not in recent memory. Oh, this is a trashy, like, you know, bad look. I mean, you could play it like that if you want to be like crass. But I feel that like, because it's such a long running, this is like a golden age character that like uh, adhering to the original look, I think speaks to, I don't know, interesting, interesting creativity. Additionally, I mean, I don't know how many, like, like Gail Simone has been very, positive over like um like her look and even and even like just kind of like how sexy she, she can look in it without being like objectified like, there's a difference right. between being like sexy and depicted like exploited exploitatively right right um so i mean yeah there's a butt shot in here but like generally like i, I think it looks fine I mean, it's the same look she had in like you know jlu where it's just straight up that there's no real embellishes um like she's not wearing the gloves that she would in, in the 2000s which is neither here nor there um my thing is just like the, the secret identity element which is just like it's, it's a Sailor Moon kind of thing, where it's just like you know a wig, but you know we gotta go with some, we gotta go with glasses and stuff. So it's just amusing to me. But like, I don't know if I've never really. It's been a long time since I thought that the Black Canary suit would be something to apologize over. Um, I feel that like it's kind of come around to being really cool on a co- sort of more modern, you know, cosplay friendly kind of you know. Yeah, town. I, I I agree with that, um, and I think he, I think you were right. The assessment that it's. I, I don't think she comes across as sexy in the sense that she's being objectified or exploited. If anything, I think that it's a deliberate sort of ownership of that um, because I think she – I mean I, reading between the lines, but also there's there's some textual basis for this. She's supposed to be one of the best-looking women in the DC universe uh, from a sort of classical – sexy attractiveness kind of a long line of meant to be sexy female characters yeah yeah yeah. there is competition there (laughs) absolutely um but uh, i mean they they've sort of referenced that so i think the sexiness is definitely supposed to be there and over but not tragic but again it's yeah to me to me it just seems like an old-fashioned look and and something that if she's going to stick with that outfit it's something that belongs in the World War II JSA Golden Age type of setting. So that's kind of where I I think this version of the character might have been best served if she had stayed there and kind of aged out with that generation of heroes. Well, how do you think they like this? I mean, obviously, I think we both like this the most ever looks. I mean, what comes right under this in terms of like a uh, different costume? Because she had that 90s costume, she had that 80s costume. She had... Um, a few more looks. I, mean, I remember that the time she had her hair cut short. Like, is there any other look that you would you would like have? If she were modern and not part of the JSA, would you pick another look that she's had, or is, or is this kind of the one to beat? I mean, I think the problem with other characters, like in the in the JSA series, she had kind of a, a distinctive look with sort of a a blue a blue and yellow top and kind of bare legs, or sometimes she had she had pants. Um, in the Justice League International era, briefly, she had the sort of what they called the jazzercise suit um, that looked like she was just wearing kind of like <laughs> loose sweats. Um, she's had a few other uh, – well, uh, she's had a lot of costumes, but I think mostly they were variations of this. And I think you don't want to get too far away from this because I <laughs> – Okay, so this is gonna, this is actually going to segue into some of the questions that I had for you about her depiction in the Birds of Prey movie. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so before we come into that, let me. I mean, you saw the movie. What, how did you feel about uh, the casting, for one thing, and the depiction of Black Canary in the Birds of Prey movie? Those are two definitely. Those are two definitely um, separate questions. And I was actually kind of thinking about that today earlier at work. Um, in terms of the casting, I mean, <laughs> I think Jernay Smollett Bell is, is quite attractive. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I was not quibbling over that. I've only seen a couple a couple of things on my show. We talked about. Um, from the angle of questioning, like like uh, the future of women in the action genre, and using as an opportunity to talk about the movie, and we had we had Stella on, and we had um, Professor Carolyn Coca, who is the writer of, of such books as um, uh, women uh, superheroes, women um, feminism. I, I could think the book and name of the book wrong. Uh, I'll, I'll correct that before the end of the show. But like, uh, she's basically like an author and professor on gender studies and pop culture, and she pointed out the fact that like it's a bit of a of a collar yank when you realize that like. The black actress is playing a character called Black Canary, which I never even thought of. <laughs> like, honestly, it made me laugh. Um, depiction. I actually kind of thought that she wasn't in it that as much as I was expecting, because it really is like the Harley Quinn show. And by the end of the movie, uh, all the characters kind of coalesce, and she's not like you know a minor character. Sure, she's definitely like you know up there. But I was surprised that she wasn't more of a presence felt than I was anticipating, just because she was she was really different. I mean. She's not somebody. She kind of has to be urged on to become a hero. That's that's something that she's not. She's kind of repressing in herself. And I thought, I thought it was fine. I, I didn't think that she was at all a betrayal of the character, but she was different enough. Now I know that Journey Bell is. Um, she's kind of like 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 the kind of Thomas Jane, Hugh Jackman kind of comic book actor, in which. When she was cast as a character, she read up everything and quickly became a huge fan of the character. Like she's a big ass Black Canary fan now, mm. and to the point where she was constantly uh, referencing Gail Simone. And I think Gail Simone had like, I, I don't know, I think Gail Simone had given her some some sign of emotion. She was crying and stuff. And she's a huge Black Canary fan, so she actually implemented a lot of like Canary isms in her performance. Like she she would say that like she would, if there was a chance for her to do like like a kick, she would. If there was a chance for her to kind of show for martial arts, she would. Um, so I think I think that like the I like the actress and her enthusiasm for the role. And I thought I thought her presence in the film was okay. Um, I didn't dislike it. I had my, my honestly my worries and concerns were far more with another character in that film. <laughs> um, but like uh, was about Clarice's concern, I thought that, that she was perfectly decent. And um, um, there were times where her wardrobe did echo. Uh, a couple of her costumes, not just her classic fishness costume. So, I thought it was all right. I thought it was all right. Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen it. Um, I saw the previews, and I was like, "This doesn't look like something that's going to interest me." Um, and my impression from afar, which could be like, I, I, I didn't see any any connection to the Black Canary or the Huntress characters that I, I had read about. And it, to me, it looked like it was Harley Quinn. And other generic female characters that we're going to refer to as as characters that have fan bases that could be way off. Um, I mean, it, like I, I would say that I'm sorry to interrupt, but like uh, the in closest proximity to the characters after Harley Quinn, Huntress is pretty on point, okay. especially in terms of her origin. I mean, the farthest away is Cassandra Kane, which was which was 100 my takeaway from the film. Mm-hmm. Um, Black Canary is kind of somewhere in the middle. Okay, all right. In terms of the casting, um, my first thought was okay. I, I, I didn't have a, initially. I had no problem with the fact that they were going, they were changing the race of the character. That didn't. I, I 
it, d- depending on who the character is, I I don't have a problem with that. I and I also I like I thought Journey looked great. I was like, she is a very beautiful actress. So good on them yes. for for casting her. And if if she turned out to really like the character and and identify and and want to do more with the character, that was great. However, kind of going back to the question that you were asking before about the costumes, I think there are there are superheroes who are defined by their character or their power set, and then there are characters who are defined by their look, and where the the, the costume is in a sense the most important part of the character. Um, and it kind of go back like with Spider Man, you can change up the costume. Like you can have him in the the classic red and blue. You can have him in a black symbiote. You can have him in the black and red Miles Morales costume or the 2099 or like the you know pajamas and and hoodie version from you know oh, yeah. uh, you know Homecoming or something like that. You can do lots of different things to that character um, and, and different ways of ma- of changing up that. But the, ultimately, like kind of like the, what people associate with Spider Man is more than just that costume. It's it's the powers, but it's also the character and the innate sort of underdog quality of him. Uh, you can change Superman's costume to some degree. You can change the Green Lantern costume as long as he's got the ring and he can do the same thing with the powers. Batman, I, I, Batman is one of those characters who I think is more defined by the costume, by the look. Um, yeah. Because I mean, because you maybe the ears and the cape, I think, is which are, are right. Was it? Yeah, maybe maybe it's a little bit half and half. But I do think like that those parts are essential. You need the cowl with the ears and the scalped cape because if you don't have those, then he's Zorro um, or or the Shadowers or one of the pulp characters that he's based <laughs> on. So yeah. with Black Canary, I, I mean. Having looked at like the, the the history and the character and how much she is a a supporting character and an also rant to these things, I think she is more often. I think her identity is tied into her appearance and the blonde hair and the sort of fishnet legs and the the sort of jacket. Um, those those. You know whether you want to keep them in a, like a 1940s style, or if you want to modern them up, you can do different versions of that. But I think those things are integral to the character. And when I saw Journey, I was like, okay, she's wearing you know tight yellow leather pants and she or, or blue pants or something. She's got like a yellow tank top, um, and and she's got dyed hair. I just I wasn't seeing Black Canary when I looked at her. And for me, the look is the most critical part of Black Canary. Sure. So it wasn't the fact that they changed the race of the character so much as I thought. I was just like, I mean, I did think it would be easier to change the race of a character like Huntress, who is not necessarily defined by that look or by her her ethnicity or anything like that. Um, yeah, as like she she doesn't have to be white, but I do think she does have to be blonde. Um, and yeah, I just I, I looked at the character and I was like, I'm not I'm not seeing the character that I used to blog about and podcast about, and that was one of the reasons why I just stopped those blogs and podcasts. I was like, because this movie is going to be popular and a lot of people are going to love this actress and they're going to want to see more of this version of the character, and it's not the character that I, I identify with anymore. So I kind of tuned out before the movie came out. Man, you said that I, I was 100 percent the same, feeling the same way about. Cassandra in the yeah. movie because it just felt so cynical 
to because when it comes to that character, I mean, she has nothing to do with any of those characters, and they come. It was just it was so in name only that like you wonder. You, you, I couldn't even believe that a woman wrote it. It was so off the off the mark. Um, when it comes to Black Canary, I see what you're saying because like she has like one of the most iconic comic character looks. I I feel especially with DC Comics, mm-hmm. and I mean we're both men, so we don't want to presume you know that like if if the um, director and writers looked at the costume and said ah we don't want to do that we don't want to send any, any messages that we, we're not intending. If they felt that way, we don't say well you're wrong. Um, we, we, we may disagree, but like, that's that's kind of their decision. I mean, at the end of the movie, um, when the BOP are established, they do have more comic accurate costumes, like like Hunter okay. straight up does. And Dinah's suit is kind of a com- it's it's kind of a, an amalgamation between her like her classic look and her '90s costume because she's not wearing like the dress, but she's sort of having like, she has like sort of a fishnet bodysuit and a okay. jacket. Okay. So it's definitely not. It definitely knows where it comes from. But I, I do see what you're saying that, like you know, because there's this this is weird like David Ayer aesthetic that they kind of kept from Suicide Squad, right. where you're expecting everybody to rock up in like tattoos and stuff, <laughs> and and it's it, it just it's like you know that still isn't necessary and no, and nobody likes Suicide Squad. Um, that she's not totally like that, but it kind of feels like it's from the same universe that, and the movie is actually is a very strong sequel to Suicide Squad. Um, That's why that I mean I, again. Uh-huh. This could be speaking from ignorance because I haven't seen it, but the whole time I was watching this, I was like, why are you branding this Birds of Prey, which is a title that most of the audience doesn't know. Most of the people watching the movie won't have heard of Birds of Prey, even though there was a TV show and even though there is a comic. That's for some fan base. But I was like, if you're going this far away, you're probably more likely to damage and alienate the Birds of Prey fan base. If you're going this far away... Just make call it Harley Quinn and the Gotham City Sirens or something. Make these characters poison yeah. ivy or uh, other things. Like, and and the other, I mean, my my assumption, the one of the maybe the reason why they stuck it with like the 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 street level girls, women, is because of budgetary concerns. But I, I don't know. I just I just felt like I was like, why are you even introducing these characters if this is the if you're going to stray this far away from the source material? Like, just make up somebody new. Well, I mean, I know that, or I learned that uh, Margot Robbie, because she was popular from Suicide Squad, she was mm-hmm. riding high on her career, made the decision when they were going to do like, oh, we're going to do some some Harley Mar- Harley movie. She said, "I want more women, yeah. and we can bring in like you know women of color and, and other kinds of different women as characters in this." And I, and hearing that, I was like, I was like, I, I, okay, I mean, I can't ignore that, even though I want to be mad. I mean, I, I can still be mad. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's odd because I think there's no it's it's a Harley movie. It's not a Birds of Prey movie, right? It is honestly superficial in how they kind of rope in different characters because it's a Harley Quinn vehicle. And I remember like before the movie came out, I was I was very angrily just calling it like Harley Quinn and, and her like Birds of Color backup singers <laughs> um, because I, I just wasn't having any any of this sort of like this sort of like faux progressive thing where she's this, it's like it's like Deadpool. And like the milestone characters, basically, <laughs> for an extreme example, um, and I feel that like you know, as you're saying, like you know, when that when Dinah is often defined by other characters, I mean, it's not like her and Harley are best friends in this. I mean, in fact, like I would say that like her, uh, Dinah has, while she forms friends, she, she is very much her kind of her singular character. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things where people refer to that film. It's like the Harley Quinn film. Like kids are referred to it and have referred to it mm-hmm. as a Harley Quinn movie. They don't. They don't. They're not going to know Birds of Prey from anything else. So it's 
it's just one of those things that you, you don't want to put up with when you're yeah. anticipating an adaptation of a franchise and you have to go through this rigmarole of Hollywood thinking that it can outthink the source material when it's both unnecessary and untrue. Right. Um, I mean, the movies, if if you have certain blinders because blinders on or just don't care about certain characters, it's plenty to enjoy. I don't like it. But I, I, I'm not telling you that it's a bad movie. It's a good movie, but I don't like it for very personal biased reasons. <laughs> um, and I swear those aren't misogynist, but I can't say that for sure. I'm just, I, I can just, I can just beg, beg my fr- female friends to uh, not, not ignore me. But I mean, like, um, if you're concerned, if you, if you ever like, uh, if you're, if, if you're how I believe you are expressing yourself in terms of just being really stressed out and bothered by this film existing, I will say I don't think that this film leaves the audience with an impression because it didn't do very well leaves the audience with the impression like you know this is the black canary it, it's not a runaway film where people are informed of a character like, like let's say a deadpool or a hugh jackman wolverine or a heath leather joker or um like a, or even a guardians of the galaxy which was my fear that it was going to take away with this very like renegade version and people are just going to associate that version because it's popular i don't think that, that this film ended up doing that um and even even i i liked Journey Smollett Bell as as Dinah, I don't think people are going to. Run, run, I mean, people will who don't know better say, okay, well that's Black Canary, but I don't think that like that's going to be. If you present the, to them a more traditional Black Canary, whether it be someone who's Caucasian or someone who's uh, Journey, I don't think there's going to be a huge disconnect. It's it's not a John Stewart Green Lantern thing from Justice League where an entire generation of people are going to be. Um, because honestly, the people who responded to this film that I saw were already comic book fans. Yeah, they were comic. They were comic fans um, who yeah. were up for this kind of movie mm-hmm. and totally fine with the changes, or or, or are willing to to roll with the changes. Mm-hmm. I didn't see a lot of people who were new to this these characters and ca- came away inspired by this unique and very different take. So I think that like well, it, it didn't do as well in the box that. office as they were hoping. I know. I, I don't think it made it. I don't think it made its money back. The budget, like domestically, once it got to internationally, it, it surpassed the budget. But I, I think it, it it struggled domestically. And I, part of that, I think, is was the R rating was misinformed. I thought they were like, well, you know, Deadpool can do it. And for that, like my my anecdotal evidence, which I've heard from several people, like like I, I've heard people say, you know, the target audience for Harley Quinn is like this. You know, tween girls or and things like that, based on like the cartoons or the yeah. comics. Um, if it's not like the, you know the the older comic fans, and I've heard from several different people who are like, I have no problem sending my young son to see an R-rated Deadpool movie. I am not going to send my young daughter to an R-rated movie. Um, there, there is. I mean, there's that gender differential, and and I think that was enough. That I don't think Warner Brothers was anticipating that, but I, I think that was part of the reason yeah. why the movie didn't do as well is because the target audience for a Harley movie couldn't go see a rated R movie. So, well, also like like uh, it's odd because a couple of things. Like, firstly, I know that like huge fans of Harley Quinn are young girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I work at a bookstore, and whenever kids like little girls want to see Harley Quinn, they're going to the DC superhero girls version. Yeah, yeah. Like, that, that version that version is very. It, I, I, leave no doubt that version is genuinely legitimately popular mm-hmm. um also like the, the movie's not really that it doesn't need to be rated r and when, and when i say that i mean i don't mean that like they added things gratuitously i mean it's not th- there are there's definitely some violence with black mask and there's some broken bones but in you know in salty language but honestly this is a very easy tv edit to do like, it, it is not 
a story that requires a darker rating. It, it could, it pretty much has the exact same tone of Suicide Squad, maybe even a little lighter because there's less torture. Um, so it feels like it's kind of going for that sort of like fresh new Deadpool Logan kind of era, and it's just not a story that that warrants it. So like the R rating feels like. It, that, that that feels unneeded because the film itself isn't that. I, I would not. I don't think that the film is that bad for teenager for young teenage girls to see at all. Yeah. The last thing that about the movie that I, I did want to sort of come to is another reason why I thought the movie was sort of mis mistitled and ill conceived. And again, this is my personal bias or, or my personal feeling coming from my my little corner of fandom. And I, I think that this has been a problem that DC. With, uh, this has been a problem I've had with DC since the New 52, when they reinvented Birds of Prey with Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. And I think they, it, <laughs> fr- at that point, Birds of Prey just became the all-girl team. And to <laughs> me, that's never what Birds of Prey was. That's not what it was about. It happened to just be girls, but it was really it was about Oracle and her covert organization and her using these agents, whether it was Black Canary and then Huntress. And she only brought Huntress in because Black Canary was incapacitated. And then they worked together. And then they slowly brought in like Black, the Lady Blackhawk and, and other agents. But it was really – it was just the code name. It, actually, they never called it Birds of Prey in the comic and, and initially. That was just the yeah, I know. <laughs> came up. But it was just Oracle and her – Basically, her her surrogate legs to go around and do her her covert spy stuff, her James Bond missions, mm-hmm. and that was fine. And then somewhere around, like once they came to the New Fifty Two, they just they lost sight of that, and they're like, "Yep, Birds of Prey is just the the all girl team." And I followed that New Fifty Two version painfully because I had to blog about it. I forced myself to blog about it. And I was like, there is no reason for this team to exist. They never tell you why they come together. What is their status quo? What is their objective? Why? How are they different from the Justice League of America or the Outsiders or the Freedom Fighters or any other team? Like, mm-hmm. what is their thing? Like, what, what is, a, what is a, a normal day in the life of the Birds of Prey look like? Because for most of the series, they're on the run and being hunted for, for revenge. It's like, how did you come together and why? But I, I Did you ever read the, uh, the re- Rebirth title? No. Back on the Birds of Prey? No, no. Because, again, it, it looked more of the same to me. It looked like they were just... If... I, I like Barbara Gordon as Batgirl, too, but... If she's not Oracle, I less reasonable. <laughs> yeah, if she's not Oracle, then I feel like there's no reason for Birds of Prey to exist. I think you might like that uh, better because I, I read both series and like I hated the, the, the New Fifty Two version. I mean, remember Strix, but like um, the Rebirth version was done by Julian Sarno Benson, and they are fans of the original '90s run, so they actually kind of brought back a lot of things. Um, that were that harkens to that original run, and I, I would not say it's it's like the best book ever, but it's better. I mean, it's it's, it's there's there's more heart there. Um, there's a bit more justification about what, about things that are going on. Um, nothing beats the original, mm-hmm. nothing. <laughs> but it's not like a cynical, you know, it's here, so let's do it kind of title like every title was in the Fifty Two, which was terrible. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of throwing out that out there that like that one is a bit more, is a much more. Um, easy to go down uh, Birds of Prey series. All right. 
Uh, well, I, I will consider that part of your recommended readings, which I was going to segue to. <laughs> eventually. Um, and, and at this point, we've spent a whole lot of time talking about stories that aren't the secret origin of Black Canary. Um, but I've talked about her, her story a lot. W- were there any other thoughts or, or feelings that you had about this particular story? Um, there's a funny bit where, like, near the end, when, like, um, Oliver gets back in the story and she's like saying, like, you know, I only regret the people that have loved and lost, Oliver, not for myself. And I misread the word blooms and I thought that, like, Ollie ended the book saying, pass assault, like he wasn't paying attention. <laughs> but that's neither, that's neither here nor there. Um, no, overall, it, it's, it's, it's fine. I mean, I could not tell you that, like, you know, this is the greatest story I've ever read, but it's certainly not, like, goofy in a bad way. And, and as somebody who's not really, who knows, like, through comic book osmosis tangentially her backstory it was cool to read this and for it to be like a solid uh backstory that, that's that one current line. so I, I enjoyed it just well enough mm-hmm. yeah and and the last thing i just kind of going through i i like the story in this in what i what i kind of explained earlier i like that it gives her this motivation before she puts on the costume that she didn't need some external tragedy to make her a crime fighter, a good person. She was already going to do that. Um, and that's a very DC trait. One of the differences between the DC heroes and the Marvel heroes is the DC heroes uh, from the, the like the Silver Age onward, they were, they were characters who were inherently good and were going to do good and bold things before they got their superpowers. Um, whereas the Marvel heroes, usually it was the opposite. Um, but... Yeah, I like that. I like her her connection to her father and and how they kind of depended on each other and and molded each other that way, um, in part because it sort of reminds me of my wife and her father. Maybe the maybe that was was he, was he a cop? He was not, but he like her her mother died very young, and he was just a, a very sort of important part of her life. I, I still say that uh, she loves her dad more than she loves me. <laughs> sort of joking. Um, my wife also drives a motorcycle, so I think there, I think I see a lot of her in, in this character. Maybe that's why I, I was so attracted to Black Canary. But other than that, yeah, yeah. Um, getting back to the recommended reading section, uh, I don't know when it is going to come out, but I saw a solicitation for it. There's, sh- and, and I don't also don't know when this episode is going to come out, but there's a book coming out called Black Canary, A Bird of Prey, trade paperback, and it looks like it has the same contents as the old hardcover DC Archives Black Canary volume. So it essentially covers all of her old Golden Age material by Robert Kaniger and Carmen Infantino from her first appearance, all of her her uh, backup appearances in The Flash. I shouldn't say all because the, all of her Golden Age because uh, she doesn't. It doesn't have her JSA appearances. Um, but like the Comics Cavalcade, it has her appearances in The Brave and the Bold when she teamed up with the Golden Age Starman, uh, and it has a an early story by Denny O'Neill and Alex Toth that looks really good. Um, so if you want to see some old Golden Age Black Canary, that would be a book to pick up. Uh, yeah, Donovan. Thank you very, very much for being my guest on this episode of Secret Origins. Where else can our guests hear from you if they want to hear more from you? Well, if they've not had enough of me, uh, thank you very much for having me on. This is this is fun. Um, I am primarily uh, one of two leads on the podcast, Questions We Don't Have Answers. It is a podcast that's that's first and foremost concerned with uh, our present and future. Um, we're very... Um, 
socially minded. We're very political on this show, so we kind of don't hold back how we honestly feel. But uh, <laughs> the gimmick is that uh, I am a lifelong comic fan, and my co-host Harry Harrison, he is a sci-fi fan. So we tend to kind of bring up certain uh, uh, references and certain examples even um, for certain topics. Like uh, we had an episode called If Superheroes Were Real, Would the World Be a Better Place? And we both looked at um, uh, three Alex Ross stories about uh, the Trinity trying to uh, save the world. We've um, talked a lot about gender. We've talked a lot about race. we talked a lot about um, violence. we talked a lot about the media. And um, particularly for this episode, if you guys are interested in hearing a professional opinion and not, and not just a couple of dude bros, um, specifically the episode where we're talking about the Birds Prey film, uh, as, as I mentioned before, was was centered around a larger discussion uh, in an episode called What Will the Future of Female Representation in the Action Genre Look Like? And for that episode, we brought in both Stella from the Background Oracle podcast and Professor Carolyn Coca, who is the author of the Eisner Award-winning uh, book, Superwomen, Gender, Power, and Representation. So we, we made sure that we had as as um, reliable uh, voices on that episode as possible. So you could you can clearly skip over my whining and uh, <laughs> listen to those listen to voices who really matter. Um, in addition to that, I also still do work on the BatmanUniverse.net, where you can also find Background Oracle. I review the Batman and the Outsiders uh, title currently, but I also am a freelance uh, content provider and freelance writer for DC Universe. Um, it's kind of stinks because you can't really find my name unless you go in the news section. But um, I've I have I have one an article that came out just tonight on recommending the Gotham Central series, and you can find a lot of my works in the last several weeks about um, Black Heroes and other uh, series or runs of books uh, that I recommend you binge. Very, very cool. And uh, as, as you were describing the, your episode with the, uh, the role of, of women in the action genre, I'm just thinking, had, had it not been for this damn pandemic, we would have had a Black <laughs> Widow and a Wonder Woman movie this past summer that you could have uh, used as, uh, oh, as textual evidence for that episode. Well, that's, that's true. Gosh. Very, very cool. Again, thank you for being on this episode. Uh, it was great to talk to you for the first time. So I had a lot of fun with this. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, same, same here. And if you have any thoughts on uh, Black Canary, whatever, feel free to bring them over. We might ha- have you on the show. We can kind of get further into uh, this because you know I, because she is such a long running character. There's a lot you can kind of bring up, bring on in terms of like discussions of uh, feminism and femininity and representation. I think that she would be a very interesting case study. Oh, I've got thoughts on femininity. So. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> All right, listeners, we are going to take one more promo break right now, and after that, I will be back with a certain message for our listeners. Don't go away. Well, here we are, the end of another episode of Secret Origins. A place I never expected to be. An episode that was never supposed to be. When I brought the Secret Origins podcast to a close four years ago, I was pretty emphatic that it was over. I knew that it was popular. I knew that a lot of listeners wanted me to continue the show in some form or fashion, and I didn't care what they wanted. Actually, no, that's that's not true. That, not, not at all. I cared a lot. It actually meant a tremendous amount to me that the show was as successful as it was, and that I continued 
past and present tense to get praise for the podcast. It was one of the most creatively and emotionally fulfilling ventures in my life. So the fact that so many people wanted more of it, it, yeah, it meant a lot. It meant the world. But it still wasn't ever going to happen. I was done with the series. I was done with the format, the routine. Maybe I was done with the expectations. And I got to leave on a high note, on my own terms. How often does that happen? No, Secret Origins Podcast was a finished work. I wasn't going back there. So what did you just listen to? And what does this mean? When the Fire and Water Network was launching our Patreon account, we were discussing what types of rewards or benefits we could provide once we hit certain benchmarks or levels of donation. Everyone suggested different ideas like the RPG session, or Rob having to watch a Transformers movie, which... I know he jokes how he should have held out for more than $100 in monthly donations. I know for a fact that he did not hate the movie like he assumed he would. And one of the suggestions offered up was the return of Secret Origins. This was not my suggestion. This was all Siskoid's doing. And it's something that he has been subtly, and not so subtly, campaigning for a couple of years. I didn't shoot the idea down. I've never shot the idea down. In part because I never thought it would happen. And the other reason I never said, no, I'm not really comfortable with the idea of resurrecting Secret Origins was, I never felt like it was my place to stop it. If people wanted to hear more Secret Origins, they can. If people want to produce more episodes of Secret Origins, they can. They don't need my blessing or my involvement. I retired the show in 2016, but I recognized the joy that it brought to a lot of people was perhaps bigger than me and my participation. So if I could just release the show, give it up, let other people take over, I could just do my own thing. It's no longer my Secret Origins podcast. Like when an artist leaves a long run on a popular comic book, they don't cancel the Batman comic. They bring in new artists. And I have tried to make it clear that I have no proprietary sense of ownership or dibs on any of these topics that I cover. I don't get upset when Michael and Andy cover the same Batman comics that Chris and I plan to cover on our Nightcast show because... A, they're not my comics. It's not my work. It's somebody else's hard work and their intellectual property. And B, I think most of the listeners, they're not tuning in to hear the events of the plot. It's not like Michael and Andy spoiled the comic before we could get to it. Or And that's just one example using those guys. But it's not like that. I mean, if people want to know what happens in the comic, assuming they haven't read them, there are other places to go to find out. I assume most people listen to our review shows because they like the hosts and how we interpret stories, what personal spin or analysis we bring. So whenever the subject of new Secret Origins episodes would come up in our fire and water discussions, my answer was always, I won't stop you. And that's not very encouraging, I admit. It's rather matter-of-fact, but that's how I felt because... My emotional tether to Secret Origins was non-existent anymore. Or so I thought. Over the summer, as we were approaching another one of our Patreon goals, the idea came up again. 
the return of Secret Origins as a miniseries, with each of the network all-stars hosting an episode. Through the course of the discussion, the guys narrowed down who would be involved, what stories they wanted to cover, and all the while I found myself sitting back metaphorically and letting the conversation unfold at a generous remove from the details. I didn't want to say I didn't like the idea, because I didn't know how to explain my misgivings. It wasn't that I didn't want them to do more Secret Origins, I was fine with that, as I just said. But now it felt like there was an expectation that I would be involved, and that was something I really did not want. I felt obligated to take part in this project that should have been very personal and near to my heart, but wasn't. It's like, hey, can you write your newly divorced parents' dating profile for this matchmaking website? Sure, because I love them and it'll make them happy, I'll do it, but god, does that sound like fun? No. And as I'm wrestling with these feelings, the rest of the guys decide on what comics they're going to cover. Cisco and Bass will do this. Rob and Shag will do this. Chris and Cindy will do this. And I'm like, I'll go last. Figure out the schedule when you want to release these episodes, and after I've heard from everybody, I'll I'll figure out how I want to be involved. And I'll bring it to a close, okay? And I said that because I was dragging my feet, and I still didn't know how to proceed. I also had no idea what I wanted to talk about. There was nothing left on the table from the first series. There was no book to pick up. My son's closet is a mess. Okay, so this is a transition. My son's closet is a mess. That's probably not shocking. Most people can imagine. Except it's not a mess full of his stuff. His toys, his clothes, they're all other places scattered around. My wife and I use the closet in his room as a catch-all for our crap. There is a bookshelf in the closet full of DC trade paperbacks and hardcover collections. There are two long boxes and five short boxes stacked on the floor. These are full of the comics that I do most of my podcasting about, so all of my Black Canary and Zatanna books are in one. All of my post-crisis issues of Batman and Detective and Legends of the Dark Knight, etc. are in here. All of the horror stuff that I cover on Midnight are here. There's also bags and bags of baby clothes that Reese has grown out of, or that he never wore, but they were given to us. Stuff that we need to get rid of or donate, but we haven't had the time. And then COVID... There's a bunch of Halloween costumes and decorations, odd seasonal jackets and stuff. There's some toys and action figures that I plan to give Reese when he's a couple of years older. Maybe. We'll see how that goes. But it's all just stacks of boxes and baskets and bags, and it's just a mess. So, I went in there and I had to pull a bunch of stuff out so that I could access the short boxes. And I pull out all of the comics that I think might work for Secret Origins. There's the issue that you just heard me cover on this episode. So, spoilers, you know how this story ends. But initially, I dismissed this one, even though I have always liked this comic. I had already covered the Black Canary story on my old blog, and I had already covered revised origins of Dr. Fate and Black Canary on the podcast. So there wouldn't be very much new I thought about this one. The other books, and there were random issues of Secret Files and Origins. There was the old Secret Origins issues from the 70s that were reprints of first appearances. 
There was even the Legend of Aquaman one-shot I thought about. But nothing was grabbing me. I didn't want to do a reprint. I also really didn't want to do the new 52 Secret Origins. And I just sat on the floor in front of the closet with comic boxes pulled out and issues littered in front of me and laundry baskets and bags full of clothes and all over the place. And I felt bogged down. And this is one of those times, I'm sorry, but for no real reason, I just glanced over at the baby stuff. And I saw this helmet. It's a little white helmet with these red and yellow and black decals glued on with Mod Podge. It's Luke Skywalker's helmet from when he flew the X-Wing to blow up the Death Star. It's got the stripes, the rebel insignia, and it's a small helmet because it's built to fit on an infant's head. Two weeks after my son Reese was born, he was diagnosed with craniosynostosis. It's a condition where the plates that make up the skull fuse together prematurely before the head can fully develop. Mild cases of it can lead to malformations of the head, enlargement, or just unusual shape. More serious cases can result in pressure on the brain, i.e. brain damage, loss of vision, cognitive abilities, stuff like that. In Reese's case, the suture was forming laterally between the top of plates. Basically, it looked like he was growing a fin on the top of his head, like Tomar Ray. I had already discovered as soon as he was born how quickly my entire emotional equilibrium could collapse on itself. But... Taking your child when he's only 14 days old to get his head x-rayed so they can see if he's going to need surgery on it, that's quite a feeling. Anyway, we eventually scheduled him for surgery at Dartmouth Medical Center in New Hampshire. Uh, The surgeons held off for another six weeks. They said that he should be at least two months old before the surgery. And they explained that the reason for that is so that he was stronger and so that the process wasn't such a traumatic shock to his system that he might not survive it. So, you know, that's another thing when you hear it. We drove down to Dartmouth the night before the operation. The surgery was scheduled for early in the morning, and they arranged for us to stay at a sort of house, sort of hotel for families right next to the hospital. We drove at night after dark. My wife, Angela, was in the back seat with Reese, and I was grateful that she was in the back with him, because in the back and in the dark, she couldn't see me crying. I knew that the next day was going to be very hard for her. Uh, I, me too, sure, but every day since he was born had been hard for her. She had had some rough times during the pregnancy, she had had a long, difficult labor. Reese was eventually delivered via emergency C-section, and the surgery knocked her on her ass. But, so far, she had been managing her fear over the cranio and the surgery really well. But I knew, once they take our baby into surgery, she was going to feel it. And I knew I would have to be a rock for her, which... Mm, strong, dependable... Not my most obvious characteristics. I had to get all of my freakout out of the way before the surgery, so I cried where I could, which was in the car. 
for miles and miles, driving through the mountains in the dark for about an hour. Yes, I can cry and drive at the same time. I can multitask that way. It's one of my talents. I had this vision of what it would be like when he was born. No, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm, I'm bouncing all over the place here. I don't remember a lot of my dreams, but I remember two nightmares. When I was a little kid, like kindergarten maybe, I remember waking up in bed in the middle of the night and going to the window, and everyone in my neighborhood, they were all walking down the street as if they were sleepwalking. They weren't staggering, like it, they weren't like zombies, but they were lifeless, and they all had glowing green eyes. I don't know if I'd seen some clip from Village of the Damned or something else on TV. I don't know what caused this. But everyone in the town was walking down the street as if they were being called or summoned by something. And they all had these glowing green eyes. And so I followed them, and they were walking past the houses I recognized until the landscape changed. And suddenly... They were all shambling up in like this long row, going up to a big volcano. Actually, it looked more like Snake Mountain from He-Man. And I didn't know what was up there or why they were going there, but I just knew it was bad. There was evil up there, and I knew that they were going to notice me, and they were going to take me up there. And then I woke up. I've always remembered that, even though I was probably five when I had that dream. The other nightmare I had when I was in college, and I don't know what inspired this one, I don't know what my subconscious might have been telling me other than, hey, you're watching too much ER. Uh, I wasn't dating anyone at the time of this dream, but the, the dream was I was married and my, I took my wife to the hospital to give birth. And then the doctor came out and said that they were both dead. They died. Or, no, my wife had died, and my baby was going to die in, like, a matter of minutes. There was nothing they could do to save it, but I could have a few minutes alone to say goodbye in private. I have no idea where that dream came from. I I wasn't in a place where I was thinking about having a family or anything, but I've always remembered that, and I thought of it a lot when we were pregnant, as as Angie was nearing her due date, and then the labor, which was supposed to go pretty smoothly and quickly, and it didn't progress that way, so I thought of the nightmare again, and the pressure kept mounting, and then they said C-section, which I know they do that all the time. I was born C-section because I was breech. Yeah, I was coming out feet first. Ask my mom. I've been doing things the hard way since I was born. Anyway... I had no reason to be afraid, except for all of the reasons why I was. I was in with Angie during the surgery. They dressed me up in like a hazmat suit. After the baby was born, the pediatrician on call and a nurse brought him over to the side table to clean him up. They let me come over and cut the cord, which I managed to do despite being distracted by the fact that the baby was gray. Weird. And then I glanced back at Angie from the side table where they had Reese, 
And from there, I could see the other side of the screen where the pediatric surgeon was still operating. And I could see my wife opened up intestines and everything. That was cool. The plan was for the newborn baby to have skin-to-skin contact with his mother. That's what they do. But she was hardly in a position to cuddle with him, so they laid the baby on her chest for about ten seconds. And then they whisked me and the baby into an elevator and up to the nursery ward. They took us to a room behind the nurse's station. The pediatrician ran tests, cleaned him up some more, and then told me very matter-of-factly that the baby had fluid in his lungs. To which I asked, hey, you going to drain that or do something about it? And he said no. They weren't going to do that. They would monitor it, and it was just something that had to happen over time. The baby, as he starts to breathe, it would push the fluid out through sort of evaporation, and it would just it would be harder, it would struggle, but it the, the baby would do it on his own. If he couldn't, then they wouldn't take action. To me, it seemed kind of like an unnecessary burden to put on the newborn, but I was in such a state that I couldn't argue. Then they told me to take my shirt off, because the baby needed that skin-to-skin contact, and Mommy was unavailable. I had this vision, before he was born, that I would see my son lying across his mother's chest, her skin warming his, passing love and affection and adoration through the pores of her flesh into him, enriching him, and this... They would bond like that forever. And now that vision wasn't going to come to pass. Instead, I had to be the body. So, very mechanically, almost unconsciously, I took my shirt off and I sat down in a rocking chair. And the nurse put my son on my chest. And I held him. And he was so small and so fragile and he was struggling to breathe. The most basic, primitive, animal thing. It was hard for him. It hurt. But I knew he could do it. I held him, and I watched him, and every breath he took was a little bit less labored. He was fighting, and he was getting stronger. I held him, And I rocked him, and I cried, because I had no idea what had happened, why my wife wasn't there to do this, why it had to be me. I had no idea if I would ever see another living person outside that room. I didn't know if I could do this. I was terrified. But my son's skin was touching my skin. His... I had a kid, I had a son, and he was touching me. He was depending on me. And every breath he took was giving me strength. And so I poured my love back into him. And out of nowhere, I sang the first of many songs that I would sing to him eventually. I sang Nobody Does It Better. Forty-five minutes later, they finally told me that Angela was in the recovery room. They had sewn her back up, and then she got sick from the anesthesia, so they had to clean her up a little. It took a while, but she was at last ready to hold her son. But by then, I knew it was far too late. I had gotten that skin-to-skin contact. I had sung, baby, you're the best. 
Reese. So I was the one that Reese was bonded with forever. All of this stuff is going through my mind as I drove down to the hospital, and the tears came and went. The next day, he had the surgery, and it was tough on us, but it went as smoothly as the professionals assured us that it would. Uh, Reese stayed overnight in the natal ICU. Angie and I stayed in the room with him, taking turns sleeping on this chair that converted into a not-at-all-comfortable cot. We did that in shifts while the other one would hold Reese's hand and try to comfort him, which I do not recommend ever having to comfort a two-month-old baby who has had his head cut open and a chunk of bone the size of your pinky removed from his skull. Um, Just take my word for it that it sucks. But he did okay, because he fought through it, just like the night that he was born. He fought and... A week after the operation, we started the next phase of correcting the craniosynostosis, which was the helmet therapy. That was a trip. Having to take a 3D scan of an infant's head so that they could custom mold a helmet and send it to us. He wore the helmet for the next eight or nine months. Uh, He actually wore two different helmets. He outgrew the first one. That was the Luke Skywalker helmet. Uh, The second helmet was a blue Captain America homage, and I I kept trying to come up with superhero names for him based on the helmet. Like, I figured if he was in the Legion of Superheroes, he'd be Cranio Kid, and his five years later name would be Buckethead. It's crazy that he wore those helmets for most of his first year of existence. That was his whole life to us. And now that he's three, it seems like forever ago. I know it was a pain in the ass dealing with it, making him wear it all day except for baths, him having to get used to sleeping with it on, learning to crawl with the thing, having to clean it every night because it stunk. Yeah, the helmet maintenance sucked, but it was also all we knew. He was our only child. We had no frame of reference to compare this to. It was a huge part of our life, those tiny little helmets. And now they don't mean anything. They're in a closet, never to be used again. Now, brace yourself, people, because this part is going to sound cornball and cheesy as hell. But I was sitting in front of these comics, looking at this helmet, remembering my son's birth, remembering holding him, singing to him, crying in the car with him in the back seat, putting this helmet on for the first time, readjusting the straps, gluing these decals on, having to go see the doctors three times a week sometimes because there were different specialists and pediatricians, all for my little cranio kid, my little legionnaire. And I was struck by this parallel that Secret Origins podcast was my first child. I know, it's so cheesy. I am sorry, you guys. You deserve so much better than that. I'm sorry. But this podcast was my baby. And now I had to let it go out into the world where other people could pick it up and do their version of it. But I couldn't allow that to happen without doing this first. So instead of letting Siskoid and Rob and the others do their Secret Origins episodes and me coming in at the end, I had to go first. I had to bring the show back officially, properly, as is my prerogative, I think. And amazingly, once I made that decision, I knew exactly what I wanted to cover. 
I grabbed the issue of DC Special Series and I sent messages out to Sean Ross and Terry O'Malley and Donovan Grant. Yes, I had covered the Doctor Fate and Black Canary Origins before, but not these versions. And these are characters who I think deserve a second look. I really hope you enjoyed listening to each of these segments on this episode. I want to thank once more my guests, Sean, Terry, and Don. It was great to talk to all of them, and really to welcome three new voices onto Secret Origins. From here, well, you can expect at least four more episodes of Secret Origins podcast over the next couple of weeks, from Cisco and Bass, Rob and Shag, Chris and Cindy, and Rob and Max. I know the stories they plan to cover, but I won't spoil them here. I'll let the guys surprise you. After that, after that, I don't know what's going to happen to the podcast. It's not for me to decide. But I'm actually kind of excited. They grow up so fast. Waking in night. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com slash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money from this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. You're my first child. I'll lose you someday to love.
Whew, this feels weird to be doing this again. I have to tell you, I am having a, such an a, a, a out-of-body experience right now. I, 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 you know, it's weird to say this to a person, but Ryan, I loved that show. Like, like I was a dedicated listener to that show. It's, it's actually, I, I don't, I think I've told you this before. It is the show that got me into yeah, podcasting yeah. Um, because you know Gotham had been like, hey, I want to do a podcast. I'm like, I don't know what that is, and he's like, <laughs> you know, here, listen to this, and I got hooked. And so it's so funny to hear you going through the like segments, right? And like the scripts right now, because I'm like, holy shit, this is so cool. I've listened <laughs> to like, you know, all 50 episodes of this or you know, 50 plus. And I'm like, this is amazing. So yeah, no, anyway, I'm having a really fun kind of funky experience. So if you're, if you're weirded out, know that I'm sort of fanboying out on the other side. <laughs> that's, that's good. That helps. <laughs> <laughs> all right. 